I've been listening to a lot of these like entitled people pod, like entitled people stories from Reddit as podcasts and stuff and like crazy Karen energy. Okay. And they always talk about how it's the same age group. And they always talk about the boomers. And I have a friend mm. in nursing who can who pointed out that they did not make unleaded gasoline illegal until 1975. <laughs> and that we know for a fact that lead has effects on both violence and reducing intelligence, and that those effects tend to be more pronounced the older you get. And I'm wondering how much of shitty boomer behavior can be traced back to lead in the air. Because, like, think about it on a bell curve, right? Mm -hmm. The people who were the most violent and crazy before the influence of lead probably got filtered out of that population in the 70s and 80s. Mm -hmm. But the ones who were right on the edge were probably fine. But as now things like dementia and old age are hitting them, exacerbated by their years of lead exposure as a child, I think you're starting to see a lot of those things crop up. And 2022 was the year that a majority of the baby boomers started retiring. So if I'm correct about my hypothesis, you should see that as these people retire and have more free time, the incidence of these kinds of violent or weird altercations goes up. Hmm. I mean, interesting prediction. It would be, I think, challenging to demonstrate the causal link, uh, especially given you know numerous other potential factors to which you could attribute that. You might be able I'm to do sure something. that's what the Romans said, right? As they kept drinking their leaded water. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, yeah, I mean, we have better things for doing causal attribution now than we did back in, in ancient Rome. Ancient Rome. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, I've been. I strongly wonder. So like. I have this big belief in environmental biology. So mm. a good example is, did you know that testosterone levels are dropping? Sperm counts are dropping. Mm. The number of people who are born women, it, like genetically, is going up. And mm. the best hypothesis we have for this is that when you consume microplastics, your body releases a spike of estrogen, but it goes away pretty fast. Like your body actually self-stabilizes. And they've known about this for research since like the 70s, as far as I'm aware. And everyone's just like, well, there's never going to be a time when you're consuming plastics in every meal. So it won't ever be an issue. So uh, yeah. <laughs> when I think about it like that, I wonder how much of our social issues are a response to our environmental biochemistry. Like how much of the baby boomer millennial tirade is really the effects of lead brain burst versus plastic hormones and i'm like that's a very uncomfortable thought i mean it it, it wouldn't surprise me if there was uh, some kind of effect there right that's uh mm -hmm. I, it just uh, yeah like with so many of these complicated problems figuring out I, this is a, a very general problem that exists in doing this kind of research right Com complex system sciences have this problem a lot right how, how do you know what's actually the cause i mean and then what's worth investing the time and trying to fix right it's uh, it makes it difficult okay. to form reliable stories around this that are backed up by something empirically concrete i mean if I were to put on my rationalist glasses for a mm -hmm. second, I would say that I am sh the 
the Marxist dialectic of hmm. uh, it all being capitalism and all being materialistic forces. You know what? I'll give those guys credit. I don't often agree with communists and socialists about their conclusions or I guess their suggestions, hmm. but their analysis and predictions seems to be pretty spot on recently. So I'm like, OK. Yeah, their analysis is much better than the diagnosis. That's um... yeah. So, like, I'm sure that if I put on different framings, I would see different things as being primary, and I'm sure they're mm. all, like, influencing it. Mm. But my question is always, which one of these, if we removed, would have the biggest effect on changing things back to equilibrium? Mm. I mean, the and thing... I'm really not sure in this case. Yeah, I don't know about the specific problem of this sort of... Uh, the Karen energy war. that you've uh, characterized. Mm -hmm. But one of the things that I often come back to is this seems like a root of many evils is um, uh, so-called intellectual property law. Right. <laughs> I mean, I think the idea wasn't terrible initially. Like mm. the idea that ideas are easy to copy and the person who got the idea first should have some sort of reward mm. is a good one for incentivizing that. But yeah damn if we have not fucked this idea pretty badly oh, it's gone yeah it's gone way too far i mean if, if you approach it from like a a free markets perspective then you can do make a pretty good case against it just from from that idea right i think that the term intellectual property was a remarkable propaganda victory right because it's gotten people who are free market capitalist trade types to endorse something which fundamentally is a very different proposition right it's a government grant of limited monopoly, right? Copyright it and is. patent are subsidies. They're regulations by the government, which provide individuals with private ownership over a thing which well, is a public good. And yeah, and in this case, I'm I'm mm. actually going to agree with the mm. like government people. It's a good idea to create safety and incentives so people can mm. innovate without it. Like, oh, yeah. here's a good example. Did you know that Amazon has recently been doing this thing where when they notice a product is really popular, they'll make their own research team, make a cheaper copy of it and then put it to the top of the list. And they're going to yep. get nailed for that. They're actually going to be successfully sued if the court cases in New York look like they're going to go through properly. And uh, they're going to it's going to hurt. It would be like, interesting I mean, to see them actually help to account for that. Yeah, they're too powerful to just like go away, but it's mm -hmm. going to be a blow to them. Definitely. Mm -hmm. So I guess we should get started. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the first episode of, uh, I think we're calling this the Oasis of Rest. What are we calling this? I, I think that was the consensus. We, we had a lot of names floated, but Oasis of Rest is fine by me. <laughs> I'm David Yusuf. I'm Richard Acton. And we are from the Guild of the Rose, and we're here to talk to you about whatever. <laughs> Some things we've been thinking about, as you heard, I've had a lot of rants recently about boomers, but mostly out of a state of sympathy. Because, like, I'm I've been listening to Karen stories, but the other side of a Karen story is a person who is deeply confused and upset. Like, yep. they're really in a bad place. There's a really good YouTube video I saw a long time ago of, like, how different Roman emperors would deal with the modern world. And it has Marcus Aurelius at a checkout counter with a, dealing with a Karen. And she's just like, no, this coupon should go through. So you should give it to me for free. And he just looks at her and he's like, 
I'm so sorry that you're so weak that even a small hiccup like this will completely disrupt your day. I will be happy to do anything for you because clearly you are made of porcelain and glass. <laughs> and it is just like the ultimate incision that their entire mm. viewpoint is one that's really pathetic. Mm. Uh, this, I think, is um, a common feature of many of the people who have this kind of, uh, in a, uh, this uh, many of the sort of you know, marginalized groups of one kind or another who have some kind of unpopular opinion that they vociferously hold to, and are touchy or sensitive about that's that's the same psychological characteristics right it's I yeah that's why i feel... react so badly when people <laughs> ask me about the aliens on mars i'm like you don't know them the way i do <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh for our listeners i we will do an episode on conspiracy theories one day and i'll go into my theory about it but um Note uh, that I don't actually believe there are any aliens on Mars currently, besides the robots we've put up there. Maybe there's some bacteria. I don't think so, but I could be wrong about that. Hmm. Now, a well, billion uh, years so in the ba past... Bacteria would be particularly interesting, because no, that's... Um... It, that's some <laughs> extremophiles. Like, there's no radiation protection. Mm -hmm. It's about as cold as Russia all year. Mm -hmm. There's dust storm. But, uh, like actual bacteria would have pretty profound implications for our understanding of uh, xenobiology right because that would indicate a common origin of life on earth and mars whereas a microorganism with different fundamental biochemistry would be a uh a, a, a yeah. another interesting point yeah like if we did a sample of the atmosphere of Venus and found some weird microbes living in its environment that use like a methane based like mm. liquid system, that would be wild. That would be insane. But it would actually would be evidence against the panspermia idea. Whereas if we found mm. the same sort of genetic sequences or at least the same basic structure, maybe even mm. different chemicals, but even the same structure would be a strong indication of panspermia, which actually is an idea I'm a pretty big believer in. Hmm. I think there is a more than 70% chance that the original unicellular like lichen and stuff came from asteroids from space. Well, uh, li lichen are, are not uh, unicellular, right? They're a... a they're uh, a colony uh, organism, a lot like yes. fungi. But they're a... Um... The first... I should have rephrased. The first yeah. unicellular organisms hmm. that were able to digest like the minerals from their environment as energy, I think, were brought from space. Interesting. Okay. I I uh, I would differ from you a little bit on that. I think actually uh I suspect the fundamental biochemical origins of life were here. Um hmm. and that uh life is probably relatively sparse in the universe uh because of it. But I suspect that much of the life that we do find would have fundamentally similar biochemistry, but probably slightly different informational properties once you start getting up to the polymer uh stuff. But a lot of the same fundamental building blocks. Oh, I uh, don't. Hmm. I this is where you and I disagree. I think hmm. my study of evolution is if there is energy in the environment and there is time and complexity, eventually something close enough to life that we would define it would appear mm. like here's a good example of a sci-fi story i've always wanted to write i learned that around a magnetic field of over a million tesla the chemical properties of materials change like the electrons will jump up a full shell 
hmm. which, you know, shifts the entire periodic table, causes all these weird reactions. Imagine a binary star system with a magnetar putting out millions of Tesla and a regular star giving off light. You could have entire entities that wouldn't be able to operate on the same principles as us. In fact, space travel for them would be so perilous because if they ever got out of the magnetosphere of their star, their entire chemistry would collapse. But that would definitely be possible. And there's enough of those in the universe. I don't see why it wouldn't evolve. And on top of that, they not only have sunlight, but all this electromagnetic energy in their environment they would learn to harness. So I imagine mm -hmm. a like a planet with crystalline trees where the leaves are like pine cones. And based on the difference, there's like arcing sparks that they use to gather energy. So like, I think that there are too many variable environments for us to expect information to be coded even in chemical patterns. Like, I don't even believe that's going to be a stable point in space. If it is, mm -hmm. I'm going to argue very strongly when we meet aliens that it's panspermia. Interesting. I could be wrong about mm. either of those points, yeah. but I think that there's solid reasons I mean, to believe both of them. I think so. The conditions vaguely like the early Earth, I think, are probably moderately common in the universe. Yes. Hard to quantify that. You know, I'm not going to put some numbers on it, but the conditions like the mm -hmm. binary system you describe, pretty rare right binary systems are actually incredibly common yes but like the specific like magnetar binary where you have planets in like crazy high tesla magnetic fields that feels like a rare thing so okay probably maybe... yeah i'll agree that that is statistically like you have to get yeah. exactly the right sequence of stars mm. the right sizes at the right ages it's Luckily, magnetars are very stable, so the time window for that is actually a pretty long time window, but yeah. it doesn't happen that often. So mm. I would be willing to agree that it's going to be less rare than what you have yeah. here. So, so you but, could get something like that giving rise to life, but I, I, yeah, I'd, I'd expect something... Uh, I also expect life to like occur, um, mm -hmm. re uh, like uh, given the right circumstances. Uh, but uh, I, I, you know, I don't. Know, maybe I'm a little bit too narrowly conceiving of it, but I, I, I think life is going to be biochemically quite a lot like us, just because I think a lot of the, um, it's hard to articulate this. A lot of the kind of basic chemistry will be somewhat convergent. Uh, that um, assumes water, first of all. And yes. most of the universe won't have water as a liquid. It will either be ice or the planet will be so hot it's a gas. So yeah. if it is biochemical, you should assume that it's going to use a different liquid base. Um, I'm it, I, I've quite heard skeptical really... of anything with a non-water liquid base actually giving rise to life forms. It just needs to have a liquid base in an environment where that's functional. It needs a bit more than that, though, because like the, you know, you, you need all of the, the, you need the everything else to be stable in the same temperature range. Your things like because you you need compartmentation for things like lipids. You need gradients yeah, of chemical right. stuff for things like you know, uh, something like a hydrogen atom, something that can be your charge carrier for a, uh, an, a the equivalent of what we have in the mitochondria for an energy gradient. That's the, and you, you know you need polymers that are also stable in that medium in that space. It, like there's there's a lot of stuff that lends 
very well to having water be the medium in which all that works um, and that's we, fair yeah. i just think i think actually this might be one of those things where we meet other aliens and they'll look at us and be like what on earth is this planet you're from where water is a liquid <laughs> like that's honestly my prediction because for most mm. of the rest of the universe water is a mineral and they'll be like, you guys live on a lava planet and you guys drink lava. What is wrong with you? Like, we're going to be very peculiar. And my theory is actually we're going to be unusually soft because we use water. Because when you think about all the problems you described with non-water uh, liquids, the materials have to be a lot stronger. So I imagine a lot of entities that would evolve in those environments would have like the equivalent of a chitinous or even like a like a cell wall almost, mm -hmm. like a crystalline cell wall. That's the only way they could withstand those environments and filter things properly and prevent their environment from killing them. So they're probably mm -hmm. gonna look at humans and be like, oh, the weird soft lava monsters, we just like, they're nice mm -hmm. and they make good music, just leave them alone. <laughs> oh, I don't know. I mean, the, 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 the softness is its own benefit, right? And if, you, if you're working with something that's crystalline or anything that's kind of harder like that, there's, there's a it's it's trickier to do a lot of the nanotechnological tricks that biology does, right? A lot of that depends mm -hmm. on uh, the, the sort of you know the Brownian motion properties of things moving around in water. Oh no, no, no. I meant it's... the cell wall would be crystalline, okay, and that the inside would be sort of similar to us, but by mm. having a thicker wall, it is. So they would actually have to be a lot like trees in the sense that the only mm. way to withstand their environment would be to be incredibly rigid. Though mm. I would recommend if you haven't read it, uh, check out the book, The Crystal Society. Mm. It is fantastic, a great book on AI, but there's a group of aliens that are plant-like and the way they do things is they have fruits that other animals will eat. And then those animals will be controlled with very simple commands using those chemicals to do mm. stuff. And the way they communicate with each other is by swelling their roots and then collapsing them. They cause cavitations in the soil like speaking. Mm. So they talk to each other like that. So I can imagine a species mm. similar to this yeah, in a yeah. non-water environment. Yeah, that sounds pretty plausible. Yeah. Mm. I mean, anything that deals with science, it, uh, anything that deals with aliens is going to be weird, but... <laughs> Oh, yeah. Did I tell you why I don't think we'll ever see aliens? No. Because if you have gravity manipulation technology good enough to get you from one star system to another in a reasonable time frame, you must have the technology within like a generation or two to go through black holes. Like you just create an anti-gravity mm -hmm. shield and you can just pop right through them. Do, and I'm sure there are scientists who would kill for that opportunity in any generation. I am personally of the belief that black holes create universes that and that when a black hole is created, singularity creates a new bubble Big Bang mm -hmm. and with slightly different laws of physics. So okay. imagine Some you're an variant on the inflationary uh, multiverse mm -hmm. model. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So imagine you are a scientist and you discover that there are universes on the other side of black holes. The first mm. thing you're going to do is going to be like, well, these all have different properties. So let's do some experiments to figure out if we can really nail down the properties of the universes being created. Two generations after that, and you have the ability to just go to other universes and get whatever resources or energy you want. Mm. So what I think happens is I think a lot of civilizations 
get to the point where they maybe expanded to a few star systems out, get to this point in their research, and then they just never expand further, because why would you? It takes so much more energy to expand outwards versus just making a hole to another universe, speeding up and making it so it has a time frame that's fast enough. You wait a few years, you go in, harvest whatever you want. Mm. That mm. is... And why would and then you probably would leave the universe you were born in alone, like a nature preserve. Hmm. Oh. I mean, difficult to falsify. <laughs> but yeah, fun. I like that. Yeah. So those have been what's been on my mind recently. I know you've been traveling and having fun hmm. and getting ready for work, but any weird or interesting thoughts bubbling in your head recently? Um, what have I been thinking about of late? Uh I mean, the things that preoccupy my mind uh, in sort of big question things are mostly, um, and I think a lot about, I'm I'm an academic, so I think a lot about mm -hmm. problems in academia, academic publishing, um, how, to, how to fix that, because that's very broken. Uh, I think about cybersecurity, because uh, I'm... Oh, well, that's a big one recently. <laughs> yeah, Uncomfortably big. Uh, oh, yeah. That's, um, yeah, cybersecurity is uh, a massive flaming dumpster fire. Um, and <laughs> if, if anyone had, like, if, if most people had any idea about the, like, how dangerous their phones are, they would probably put them in a wood chipper immediately. The only reason I still have one is because I need one to interact with the rest of society. <laughs> I mean, I I think it's past the statute of limitations now, so this is fine. About 10 years ago, I was on the Silk Road for research purposes, obviously, <laughs> only. And uh, one of the most shocking things is people were selling identities like in bulk on the Silk Road. And I was like, wait, what? And they were mm -hmm. like, yeah, buying someone's identity. 58 cents buying it with a social security number four dollars and i was like yep. i don't think this is incredibly cheap this is uncomfortably cheap and it's only gotten worse since this is why my strategy is to salt all data about myself so it is unusable by any major organization or uh company by mm. I mean, uh doing random things i've gotten pretty good <laughs> I've, there's a good metric you can use, which is mm. people who are on social media will always joke about how like they'll get advertisements for things they just thought of. Mm. That's an indicator that the model they're using of you is incredibly accurate, mm. and I don't like it, and that they're probably spying on you to some degree. Mm. My advertisements make no sense anymore. <laughs> the only ones that make sense are the pet ones, because I encourage those, and I like getting things for my cat. But mm. my favorite one is it just had one recently. It was a shirt with the Neon Genesis Evangelion logo for Nerve, and it just said Silica Packet. And I'm like, mm. they've just given up. They have no idea who I am anymore <laughs> or what I'm interested in. I have succeeded <laughs> on uh, some uh, level. It, evading... I'm getting asymmetrical haircuts so that facial recognition doesn't notice me. Mm. Yeah. I, ev evading um, categorization by the surveillance capitalists is not terribly difficult it's some of the more fundamental stuff like having a unique identifier on your phone that will keep track of where you are and who you've been talking to uh that are a lot more challenging to uh counter yeah yeah 
I mean, I also just have a general rule that I keep my phone like either at my house or mm. in my car or like away from me as often as possible. Also, just because it's good for my mental health and like my friendships and stuff. Like I've noticed mm. like things are much better when we are forced like the 90s to talk to each other. What a yeah. dark age yeah. that was. Uh, I mean, I've uh, I've just been in the process of properly switching over to a, a lineage OS uh, custom ROM on my phone, oh. uh, which has a an interesting feature of which is a bit of a problem for some things, but actually sometimes a benefit in that push notifications are often broken because yes. it doesn't have micro G Google services thing. I went for the full <laughs> no Google version and the services mm -hmm. which do push notifications all go through Google's services thing. So like every time you get a notification about something, Google also knows about that. But the, uh, yeah, so in, in order to uh, get rid of it from your Android device, you have to like forego most push notifications unless the app developer has deliberately worked around Retroactively. that. Retroactively? Yeah. <laughs> that is actually kind of brilliant. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. like when the U.S. government makes all of their nukes on giant floppy disks from the 40s because they're unhackable. Uh, well, I mean, the, there's probably multiple reasons for that, most of which are not good. <laughs> that one is. But, uh, so yeah. Councilman Errol Heiberg of the Guild hmm. was a nuclear tech on a nuclear submarine for about six years. And he has some stories oh, to tell me. Hmm. Yeah. And that one is like official, like they're using old tech on purpose because it really is unhackable because mm -hmm. nobody like one of them uses punch cards. Like, how the fuck do you hack that? Yeah, but I mean, that, that some of it unhackable. is <laughs> some of them are very worryingly old. Yeah, that's like, the other thing, I'll... though, right? The functionality starts to get a little bit in question when you start having tech that's that old. <laughs> uh I will let him explain more of the story, but one of my mm. favorites from him is he was installing new tech on their submarine. Mm. He was putting in a board and he looked at it and it said, new circuit board made in West Germany. And he's like, what? <laughs> That's not a good sign. <laughs> yeah, this was back in like 2012. And he was like, wait. Uh... <laughs> I hope someone still has the schematics for that so you can make new ones if you run out of the supply. <laughs> Hey, you know what? I will say this. I have a lot of negative things to say about the military industrial complex, mm -hmm. but the way that the Navy has thought through the risks of nuclear submarines is genuinely impressive. Like genuinely. there are seven or eight different things you can do if things go badly. And the mm -hmm. last one is my favorite. If it really overheats and you can't cool it down, <laughs> there's a valve in the wall that just leads to the ocean. You just pull the valve and pump it full of ocean water. Yeah, Literally yeah, just put work. a hole in it. Yeah. And I was like, okay, I love the fact that they thought about it that mm. far. There's also reasons that no other department has nuclear-powered tanks or nuclear-powered uh, airplanes, and the answer is they were not smart. Yeah. Like, nuclear submarine engineering is just astonishing. It's, yeah. It's they also so invented impressive. Febreze. <laughs> yeah because wow. think about okay. it you have 150 yeah, can, men mm, trapped in a metal why. tube <laughs> <laughs> no, febreze um, and the nuclear engine <laughs> there's a particularly arresting image uh that uh always comes to mind when i think about nuclear submarine which is um there's a photograph from the northern fleet in russia in one of their harbors with five 
of the six typhoon class um nuclear missile submarines that were that were ever built in dock at the same time uh and these are really this is the biggest submarine ever made 48,000 ton displacement when submerged ridiculous right they have the fascinating feature of uh, like double hulls not not uh, yeah. sorry not two, uh, two hulls double hulls is just having you know the two layers of a hull which yeah. is uh, common in in russian submarine Pretty design standard, yeah but it's two separate pressure hulls right side by side in fact there are like four or five total pressure hulls with some smaller ones for the command module but inside the outer hull there are two separate main pressure hulls each of which has a basically fully separate submarine inside it right <laughs> and the missile launch tubes are up the middle between the two pressure hulls which actually is a great safety feature but especially when you're dealing with the soviet um missiles because they were liquid fueled not srbs oh. and they had a lot more problems with like fuel leaks and missiles cooking off in the that. launch tubes yeah yeah that's terrifying yep. jesus so so this image Ow. with those five submarines there's i think it's 20 launch tubes and 10 warheads per missile so there's a thousand nuclear warheads in this picture or there could be i don't know if they're actually fully armed in this image but there's the capacity to carry a thousand thermonuclear warheads in this photograph of these five uh <laughs> typhoon class submarines and it's just it's one of those things that's just like all the hairs stand up when you think about that too much <laughs> i i don't like this uh, there's only one of them AI. still left in service we need ai to take away nukes from us that's uh, the one thing i would ask <laughs> no. it's terrifying mm. that let's go with like we can say that that is your worrying development for humanity for this week. We have different segments. We're trying them out, and <laughs> that's yours. Mine came from Chapo Trap House this week. Mm -hmm. So I love Chapo Trap House. Hilarious podcasts. Again, I don't necessarily agree with their uh, prescription, but their diagnosis as dirtbag socialists. Chef's kisses. Fantastic. Mm -hmm. And they were talking about Diane Feinstein in the U.S. Congress. Mm -hmm. And how there was recently a piece about her. And I got to agree, like, no one in Congress, no one in the government can ever just call a spade a spade. The woman is 89 years old. She's losing touch with reality. Like, dude, Chuck Schumer had one of the most heartbreaking stories where he, like, had to tell her, like, yo, you need to step down because you're not all here. And she forgot the conversation. So he needed to have it again. Think about how much that sucks. Ooh, yeah. Yeah. And like they were just ranting. They're like, this woman should not be in Congress. She is a like she is the ultimate proof that we live in a useless gerontocracy. And it, the it, fact that the Democrats can't kick her out is, is why the Republicans win all the time. It is. A, it's a kind of fascinating feature of the pathology of the current American political system that has this the gerontocratic aspect of it, right? The, the fact that only these people who have so much vested interest accumulated, so, so much sort of background in various aspects of, of you know, the political It's much worse machine. on the Democrat side. It's, yeah. Republicans are much younger on average. Hmm. Republicans in the US government are younger on average by about 15 years than Democrats. Yeah, come to think of it, yeah. 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 Hmm. 
it hadn't really occurred to me. Uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, the in the is is the difference smaller in the Senate, bigger in the House? I, I guess probably smaller yeah. in the Senate, just because there are fewer people. Yeah. Hmm. Actually, wait, no, it's the opposite. I remember this from that Bill Gates thing about small schools. When you have a small clustering, extremes tend to happen more often because there's not a big thing to average it out. Hmm. So I'm actually not sure. I would not be surprised either way. But last hmm. I saw, it was like the average Republican is still older than the average American, but they're still younger than the average Democrat in government, hmm. which is very worrying. Considering we have President Brain Melty on stage every other day, and I was not a fan of Trump, but like, I'm sorry, this is Trumpian behavior. I will give mm. Joe Biden credit for getting us out of the war in Afghanistan. He did something that was truly admirable and very difficult when everyone else was like railing against him. Completely when the screwed the execution. When the military though. set him up. No, because here's the thing, and he, uh, this is what I will argue those same generals said it was going to be fine six months ago. So the only reason the execution was screwed up is because those generals, just like they did with Trump, oh, yeah, just I'm, like they did with Obama, I'm not lied pinning, to create an ever war. Yeah, I'm not pinning the execution problems on Biden. I'm, I'm pinning yeah. them solidly on intelligence failures in the... Yes. Uh, yeah, but uh, yeah, it was... Um, it was the not one pretty. good thing he did, but it was botched. And honestly, I'm not going to blame him for that, because like you said, mm. this one wasn't his fault. But like recently, I read an article about how he's upset that nobody likes him and he has like Trump level approval ratings. He's like, come on, man. And I was like, dude, this is Trumpian behavior. What is it that the left always says uh, to Democrats? They can never fail the people. They can only be failed by the people. Mm. So as a as a Brit looking in mm -hmm. at the American politics from the outside. And I'm, I'm a Brit living in Europe, and you know, mm -hmm. I've also lived in the States briefly uh, when I was a kid. So I have a, an interesting sort of outsider's perspective, but with a bit more kind of familiarity with the United States uh, political system than someone who's never you know, encountered it more directly. Mm -hmm. But the, like, the rest of the world kind of is 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 not uh, is is like concerned right right <laughs> we we look at what you're up to over there and we think um like get your shit together <laughs> so play, play that clip from you know uh rick and morty where uh morty tells summer to get her shit together repeatedly right this is the put rest it all of in the, a bag yeah exactly right Th this is the rest of like the anglosphere and most of europe's attitude towards the states at the moment right it's like what the hell are you doing? I would like to point out <laughs> that as an American who watches a lot of British news, this is pretty entertaining to hear. <laughs> Though Fair. I've heard the description, I've heard the description that the animosity between Americans and British people is imagine you had a cousin who was so similar to you, they could be your twin, mm -hmm. but they were like 3% more annoying and 3% less pretty. And so you absolutely <laughs> hate them because they're too similar to you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the Americans kind of picked up a lot of the British Empire's mantle in their uh, <laughs> behaviors after we kind of yeah. uh, had our uh, in a fall from grace, as it were. Yeah. Um, I mean, at least you guys had a graceful one. Like, we are just kind of collapsing. Though yeah. I am going mean, to say, graceful might be generous <laughs> for us. 
I think I'm just comparing it to what I'm seeing in America right now. <laughs> Let's just go with that. Though I will say, I do think that things are not like apocalyptically bad. I think within 10 years, things things are already starting to mend. It's just the processes are so slow. You won't see the results for another three or four years. Like America is going through the biggest reindustrialization since World War II right now. Yeah. My yeah. real fear is what's going to happen to the rest of the world. Like, you know, I'm a big mm -hmm. fan of the geopolitical thinker Peter Zion, mm -hmm. and he predicts a rough 10 years for the U.S., but an absolutely catastrophic one for the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. And I, I think he called the, money, the war though. in Ukraine yeah. like six years ago. I, I tend to give anyone who does an alley-oop that good a lot of credit. Mm hmm. Yeah, I, I, I followed up on a few of his things after you recommended mm -hmm. it to me, and I, I think his analysis is pretty solid. Yeah, uh, it's a, yeah. So I, I'd also be fairly optimistic in the long term for the states, um, but mm -hmm. yeah, like you got to get your political system in in hand, and it's not it's not party politics; it's process, right? It's you got to fix your democratic institutions, your voting systems, your like, like you need to get rid of this two party system, right? That's that's I mean, all, yeah. every incentive is pushing against what you are saying. The I fact know. that we finally have ranked choice voting in New York State was mm. a major accomplishment. Dude, yeah. we don't even have VAT taxes, even though the rest of the world uses it, and it's the mm. most sensible system. Mm -hmm. The fact that we have to guess how much we pay in taxes every year when the IRS knows is maybe the most insulting thing as a U.S. taxpayer. I'm like, yeah. I'm not trying to take like I'm not even trying to avoid my taxes. Yeah. <laughs> Just tell me how much I owe. And like the, the state sales tax thing has also been always it's, it's like, what, why am I not getting the actual price that I'm going to pay for this thing on the list price in stores? Like, what what is this? Why? <laughs> I, uh, oh, it's my real hope is honestly in the next few years, even with advanced medical technologies, the oldest people in government will just die off. Like, I hate to say it, but like at this point, I'm not sure what else will cause it. Like, I mean, there is, yeah, the whole science progresses one funeral at a time thing applies yeah. in other contexts. <laughs> it's but, just um, so frustrating because, right. like, I don't understand. Then again, maybe this is the period of time, like, someone made a, re a point that, like, between, like, 1850 to, like, Teddy Roosevelt, there's, like, a slew of presidents nobody remembers. And it's just, mm -hmm. like, the White House was full of drama and bullshit. And he's like, maybe we just live in that period and we just don't realize it now. Yeah, I think we're in like <laughs> the internet is uh well, okay, the web is basically my age, right? And I'm almost 30. So the web's 30. And mm -hmm. like it's one of the most disruptive information technologies in the history of everything, you know, humanity, right? And you know, this mm -hmm. is printing press level stuff. So it, it, this kind of 50 years being kind of nuts is to be expected. Um <laughs> I mean, yeah. I always remind people that the printing press led to like a hundred years of war in Europe. Yeah, but and that, you know, this acceleration of uh, like technological yeah, stuff, right? It's it gets some. But here's the problem. Hmm. But like, by the time we're getting used to the internet, we'll have the meta net and like augmented reality and AI, which will be another step up. Like, by the hmm. time we're used to that, I think we'll have another big paradigm. 
shift, I, which I, is actually kind of bad. I don't think humans have time to adjust. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know how much of a step change that's really going to be from the current state of affairs. Right, the the augmented reality stuff is okay. Yeah, you got a, a higher fidelity experience, but it's not like that much more on just video chat to be honest with you like there's a lot of really more immersive and interesting stuff you can do with it yeah. uh, for uh, like workflow and for remote collaboration stuff it'll you know, bring down the barrier to a lot of that but I, I i don't know that it's not sort of more or less coextensive with the current revolution although i mean the current revolution kind of stretches back uh, it, it, they all overlap with one another at this point right you know radio yeah. and television and um i mean it started uh, with the telegram you yeah, start with the yeah. telegram I mean, and so then the, you get the, the thing that i think is the most interesting bit though is is, is the transition from broadcast to narrow cast right that's yes. that's the step change in the business model associated with the um the information dissemination industry and the thing that changed the incentive structure and the thing that um broke some of the shared epistemics right the the common um like shared reality stuff of when you had broadcast media everyone had the same background information who was exposed to it but as soon as you transition to narrow cast now it's much more epistemologically uh, epistemologically disruptive right that's the thing that's that's causing the fractiveness the, the, the fractive uh, what's the word the fractiousness that's the word i'm looking for yeah in, everyone's in siloed politics. into their own mm. pi private communities their own little digital mm. cul-de-sacs and mm. it very much alarms me because mm. My family is Egyptian, and mm -hmm. one of the things I really dislike about Egypt and their uh, education system is they start the specialization off very young. Mm. Like, my father went to a high school that was for STEM people, and my mother went to a high school for liberal arts people, mm. and never the twain shall meet. And then my father went even more specialized to a college that's just for engineering. And my mother went to a college that's just for lawyers. And it gets even worse in their professional careers. There are private clubs where you cannot enter unless you're an engineer or a lawyer or the family mm. member of such. And this creates a system where I met a professor of political science who was a friend of my mother's there. And the man's understanding of political science, staggering. Mm. His understanding of what I would call just above basic economics was on my level and everything else was much, much weaker. Yeah. And I was like, this specialization makes you all really bad at your jobs. Like there are lots of experts, but no iconoclasts. Hmm. It's a, um, I think, uh, 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 one of those problems of scale, like, cause you need specialization but you need the ability to bridge between disciplines. So we're at a tipping point where increased specialization is at, is becoming a problem for the degree to which it leaves you siloed. Right? We, we need new specialists in niches that connect separate specialties uh, in order to make, in order to have people who actually have mental models of multiple different things at the same time, because, you know, the the more you specialize like the less room you have available in you know time to maintain your mental picture of stuff 
right? And as the specialty gets greater, there's more and more stuff that you have to keep in mind about the specialty in order to be a good specialist. So it's, yeah, like we need a new niche. And it's a problem in, you know, I said I think about academic publishing. That's a problem I see uh, in academia is that we have too many very narrow niches and not enough people drawing connections between them. The incentive structure I mean, doesn't favor it. It's such a huge time cost to become competent. Like I pride yeah. myself on being a generalist in STEM, but the cost mm. of that is it cost me seven and a half years mm. to get a bachelor's. Now I do mm. have a very broad base of knowledge. I can do that, but it was a huge cost. And it was only the privilege of having another job I could do simultaneously that allowed me to do that. Mm. Like the system wasn't built for anyone to do what I'm trying to do. And yeah. I'm very frustrated because there are people way smarter than me who should be doing it, but mm. they don't have the time and energy to create their own path. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> yeah, it's it's an institutional problem as well as a like you need ways of funding people to do that activity. You need people who publish papers that bridge stuff to get like rewards for it, right? I mean, part of the problem is a lot of a lot of those kind of niches, the kind of synthesis jobs where you're uh trying to draw together those disparate things it doesn't look like you're doing a lot from the outside right okay i need to sit down and spend six months reading the literature from these like three domains where i think there's something interesting connecting them and make some notes right <laughs> that doesn't have any specific like measurable research outputs <laughs> see i always think about it like this Low-hanging fruit are probably everywhere, hmm. but you need to have the right lenses to see them. And usually mm -hmm. that's a lens and a framework you get from an outside field. Yep. So when I go through something like that, the way I describe it to others is I'm learning about a new field so I can apply those lenses to look for low-hanging fruit we may have missed. And I think that's a better framing to show companies the value of it. Because like, mm. if I do that for five years and they pay my salary for five years, and then I discover that there is a material property that has been undiscovered, but was like briefly cited in one paper mm. uh, on biotech, but would be very useful for our new crystal computers, that will be worth billions. It's worth looking for those low-hanging fruit. They're, uh, I think Nassim Taleb would call them a anti-fragile use of your time. Hmm. Although they do tend to be a bit sort of high-risk uh, activities, right? At least they're perceived as high-risk by many of the academic communities, right? If you just if you go off looking for something that's not just incremental in the knowledge of a given field, then you don't have any guarantees that you will have something that you can publish well at the end of that, right? That's the way the well, incentive structure why, works. That's yeah. why mental clarity is the child of courage, not the mm -hmm. other way around. Yeah. And this is something I also believe academics should be forced to have jobs that are non-academic. I think it actually does them an incredible good. <laughs> like Einstein did his best work in the patent office and mm. Specifically, the example I'm thinking of is for years, I had heard that math is a young man's game and that mm. really no mathematician puts out good work past 30. But I read a paper a few years ago, an article about a Chinese researcher who was publishing amazing work well into his 40s and his 50s. And the answer was he just never graduated. He just like allowed himself. He was like, I don't care about the degree. I just have the free yeah. time to do what I want. And so it's proof that it's not anything about mental agility or youth. It's literally just about space and time. Yeah.
Yeah, it's, it's a, there's some a lot of interesting stuff like that. If you go and look back over the history of the kind of you know like the gentleman scientist in kind of the like mm-hmm. Victorian era, where just you know, you know, effectively men of leisure, right? They just they did whatever they didn't have to worry about their income, so they just did stuff they found I mean, interesting. <laughs> Thomas Bayes is probably the man we're both like. Mm-hmm the one who probably connected us historically and he was a bird watcher he was just a dude who was like is that a fucking cardinal i think it's a cardinal yeah <laughs> like that's literally all it was and more concretely and more um like recent stuff in the context of actual academic work right people who um are in like uh competitive grant uh award based funding systems mm-hmm have to spend kind of like half their time, sometimes more, writing grants, right? They have to try and get money for about half the time, which is kind of insane anyway, right? And then if you take that and compare it to people who are in uh, like different funding models where they basically just get, you know, we're going to employ you permanently as a scientist to do science stuff, like their productivity is basically the same. So, like, all of this expenditure on trying to get competitive grant stuff doesn't really get you any important edge in, uh, like, quality of research output. I mean, I think there's a space for a lot of different funding models, but at the moment we have very little diversity in the existing funding models. Most of it's the competitive grant version. And a lot of the work that comes out of the stuff that's more permanently funded has a lot, lot better um, long-term Well, there's less, there's less incentives to like color the data or yeah. to cut corners or anything. But also just like long-term commitment to a project, right? You can undertake a much more extensive program of research that's kind of much more long in its time horizon if you don't have to think of a three-year funding window in which to try and get it done right and you can follow up on stuff like you know, maintaining software projects or something for a longer period of time if you have that kind of funding window which almost no one does in the us and the uk's academic funding for culture in fact it's been declining dramatically in, in the last few decades right there's, there's less like mm. staff scientists and people who are permanent research positions in uh, government labs and stuff it's more and more competitive grants yeah. hmm what would be the best action to take to f- shift the market to shift the the market uh, yeah, like in... the market currently is pushing uh, companies to be like, well, we could pay them a salary, but it's much easier on our finance department to just have them do contract work effectively on a grant basis. Mm. So from their perspective, the data you said indicates they should just keep doing the grant model. So if that is the case, then how can we change the market? Like what actions would be needed to change their incentives? I think the answer is you need to offer something that's so good that unless they comp- like unless they change, they won't have any researchers. Hmm. Or the ones they'll have left are so bad that they'll lose whatever market edge they have. I mean, my it's dream tricky. is that my dream is that you go out to a bunch of the rich people who do hmm. things like go to give well and effective altruism. And you create like a big fund that they all just invest to 
Hmm. And then that money is used to pay for scientists and any innovations that those scientists make. Some of that money goes back to the original investors and some of it goes back into the fund to hire more scientists. Yeah, I mean, that, there, is, uh, there was a funding model which had a similar um, approach to that. Uh, I think it was actually run by one of the big oil companies, if I remember correctly, uh, where it's mm. basically just they had a, a, a guy with a scientific background on staff who basically just, you know, wandered around academic conferences and say, I like this guy's project, but he can't get it funded in the conventional model. I'm going to give him I don't know, some a fairly large sum of money to just go and work on it. Um, and that was pretty effective. It had a number of really successful outcomes, but that basically went away when uh, the chief executive changed. Um, so like that kind of funding model, it's, it's a, a vaguely more similar to the, the, the DARPA, ARPA, IARPA variant on the funding model, although they're, they're they've been moving a bit more in the kind of grant-like direction, but they were a bit better at giving out big chunks of cash for longer-term projects for a little while. Well, that's because the government, and especially the security industry, understands that Mm. uh, this is not something you want to skimp on or get secondary work on. They learn those lessons painfully many, many times. Mm -hmm. I just... It's just Maybe a that'd be a good thing, project. Right? It's, it's having it's having more diversity of funding models. That's what I think is Though, what's needed. I will say that there is one criticism of the scientific model that I do agree with, mm-hmm. which is it is ludicrous that the people who gather the data are the same people who analyze the data. In an ideal model, mm-hmm. what you would have is the people who write the experiment, do the experiment, and analyze the data it would be three separate people. But since that is not possible, maybe just two. But like mm. the fact that you can produce so, the data and analyze it yourself just seems dumb to me. Like I, I've yeah. read so many papers about medicines where they had data that it wasn't as effective. Like mm. Prozac. Um, Tom Cruise got in trouble a few years ago for talking about how Prozac and pharmaceuticals are overprescribed, and everyone like gave him shit for it. And then I mm. found out like two years later that. To get FDA approval, you need to show three test results um, that significantly beat the placebo margin, and they have to be like long-term studies. What I didn't know is that Pfizer had actually done over 70 studies and just waited for the ones that gave them the results they wanted and only submitted those. So I'm like, wait, wait, wait. The most prescribed antidepressant on the planet doesn't even meet the threshold of being better than a placebo, and we know it has side effects. What the fuck? <laughs> yep. Uh, that's the, uh, yeah. I, if, if, if you haven't uh, read Ben Goldacre's book, Bad Pharma, and his other one, Bad Science, then like, uh, and you want an insight into the problems of, of like medical trials, then like read those. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, but yeah, it's now we're moving away from the area of grant awarding and into the area of publication, which I've thought a lot more about. Uh, because I'm I'm, I'm junior, yeah. right? So I don't have to do a lot of ground stuff yet. <laughs> but so, yes. what would you change about the writing process, the paper writing process, not the grant process? Because I paper... think I actually have some good ideas for that, but I don't know shit. I've never had to publish a paper. Yeah, yeah, I mean, the paper writing process at the moment, I think, needs to be, at least in the biological sciences, shifted quite a lot. I, our papers are too long. That's the main feature, like. 
as a it seems like a simple prescription but that's a big problem in several ways one of which is uh you're trying to do narrative making when you're writing a paper these days right whenever you're writing a paper we talk about telling a story of some kind mm -hmm. we should not that's not no this is not what primary research is supposed to be right I think the unit of publication needs to shrink basically to the level of individual experiments, right? A publication should be almost basically just an experiment and you should ideally pre-register I mean, that experiment. I like, and then... I personally like it when I read a paper and they have a little intro section where they're just like, hey, this is the mm -hmm. problem I was curious about. This is how I thought to falsify it. And this is the experiment I'm going to run. Like, I do actually appreciate yes. a little intro, but you I are 100% right, especially coming from the engineering side where mm -hmm. I would read a paper and it would be like, uh, we think we have a new material science paper about a new alloy. And it's like four pages. There's some nice graphs. Everything's very clear. And then I went into biotech and they would give me these 30 page papers. And I'm like, there is a page and a half of content in here. Like, I know what it's like to be a bad student and stretch your paper. And I'm like, these motherfuckers are stretching. Yeah, yeah, it's it's bad. And like, if you go back to like the 80s and 90s, biology papers were a lot shorter. I haven't actually like gone and double checked that. But I from from anecdotal experience of reading mm -hmm. papers across this time period, I'm pretty sure that would hold up if I went through the archive and measured the paper lengths. But it's I don't know about medical papers, but I've had to use some old bio papers in my yeah. biomimicry classes about like butterfly wings and stuff. And mm -hmm. yeah, they're much cleaner. Yeah, yeah. I, I, it's been like, getting leave bad. Leave the story for your presentation. Yeah. Leave that. Is, like so that's this great. Is, this comes back to what we're talking about earlier about the specialization problem, right? I think mm -hmm. my my prescription of make your paper smaller comes with a second prescription of we need another layer in the publication stack, right? So at the moment we have primary papers and we have reviews and then you know you have textbooks and more general communication above that and potentially below that level you might have data publications and um you know it, it, there's a variety of different things that can be units of publication like pieces of software and and um mm -hmm. uh, uh protocols and methods right those kind of sit below or on the same tier as your primary research publication but you need a what i call a synthesis layer between uh, what I think should be primary publications, which are basically individual experiments, and broader reviews of the field, right? And that's where you do your sense-making work, right? That's where you make your models, right? So you a contextualize in, the data. Exactly, right. In mm -hmm. that layer, um, it looks a bit like one of our current papers in biology in that it talks about a series of experiments and brings them together to to tell some kind of a a, a narrative, ideally one which has um, uh, some additional predictions and is trying to make something of a more, if not formal, but more you know well thought out model and is drawing not necessarily just on your own work but from the work of others, right? That's the the layer that we kind of try to cram into our primary research papers at the moment, and it doesn't belong there, right? The and the Part of the problem that arises from this is the process of review gets harder, right? So, what do you mean? If you have a big paper, it's mm -hmm. still going to be reviewed by like three people, right? 
those three people may or may not necessarily have the relevant expertise to assess everything that goes on in that paper, right? If I have a paper that has three different experiments that are using three very different methods, and it's all reviewed by people who have some knowledge of the biology that I'm asking, maybe one of them knows one of those methods well, and maybe the third person um, has is, the math analysis yeah, done, but doesn't know anything stats, about the experiments. Right? Yeah. So that leaves you with a couple of methodologies in that paper that are likely completely unexamined by anyone with the relevant expertise in those methodologies in the review process, right? So it dilutes the review process. And you also have a problems there of like diffusion of responsibility among the reviewers, right? So you assume that someone else will review the mm. bit that you don't know, right? You review the stuff that you know, and everyone else reviews the stuff that they know, but that might all be the same stuff. <laughs> <laughs> or like even if it isn't there's still a good chance that's not 100 percent covered it, exactly right it's not going to cover the whole thing right so that's one of the other reasons why they're too big right we have to get them down to the an individual experiment size because then there's no room for that like creep i don't i don't understand one thing which is why is it that if you mentioned it i never thought about it until now mm. but every biology paper needs to tell me about every experiment that happened before this experiment and how they all led to this one and i am just so over it like i'll cite them i'm not trying to say mm. i came up with these ideas on my own but let me just write the experiment and then say i got this idea from this paper here and mm. this is what they did there and this is why i'm doing it and then at the very end if you really want i'll give you a conclusionary paragraph where i'm like hey this experiment cited here and this experiment cited here led me to this conclusion and that's why I'm doing this. Like the fact that I have to read a novella yeah. about things that aren't relevant. There is, is some over contextualization. <laughs> it's almost I'm sorry. I sometimes see engineers making the issue of thinking everyone is as knowledgeable as they are. So they sound like aliens, hmm. but biologists have the other problem where they think everyone's an idiot. And so they over contextualize everything. And I'm like, Bro, you don't need to explain to me what a mitochondria is. I would not have picked yeah, up this paper I mean, <laughs> if I didn't know what it was. Like, I'm genuinely upset. Part of, I think part of it's trying to deal with the fact that unlike a, um, unlike the physical sciences, the biological sciences has a huge amount of descriptive knowledge, right? There's a bunch of stuff that's like super specific to this particular organism or whatever right so unless you you can be a biologist and read this paper but have no idea about some of this relevant context so we do we tend to kind of overcompensate because we don't have as much generalizable theory as some of the more um like what generalizable theory you need you need to know enough quantum physics and biochem to know how molecules are going to mm. work generally i don't yeah. think you should like i don't know anyone who can like model 100 atom protein chains but i can model like mm. a hemoglobin in my brain pretty confidently and like think about what it does it, it comes evolution more to um so i think the problem is is that we're not focused enough in the contextualization that we do we try to come at it from like a super broad area and we don't focus enough so there are things about What's individual organisms that might trip you up right so let's say i'm 
a mouse or a human person and then I come to some worm data and I don't understand the idiosyncrasies of how worms do transcription with this like yeah. weird alternative splicing thing that they do at the beginning of all their transcripts or like that most explains things. a lot because they get cut in half and then they still reproduce so they need to have a different mechanism for repair otherwise that would be lethal to any other species uh, I'm mostly talking about a different worms but yeah um, that applies oh, okay. in another context yeah <laughs> yeah um, yeah, I'm thinking of nematodes, C. elegans, C. elegans, oh, okay. right? They're, they're less good at the recovery if you cut them oh. in half, but they're, uh, um, yeah, they the have- The dopey boys flipped. with the flat, with the flat faces <laughs> and the weird silly eyes. They look like googly eyes. <laughs> well, they, they don't really have eyes per se, though. They're too photoreceptors. Yeah, yeah, okay. They're uh, technically but, uh... <laughs> photoreceptors, but damn it, they look like silly googly eyes. Um... <laughs> I do get what you mean, but I, I think this is one of those things. We were talking about first principles. So in my opinion, the first principles of physics are relativity and then Newton's laws. The first principles of biology are evolution and quantum physics. Yeah, I think those much. should be the only <laughs> things that you study for the first year and a half of biology because everything else is memorization. Like I've gone through the undergrad classes and I've tutored these kids and they're smarter than me, but they just have to brute force everything. Um, and because I'd taken those physics classes where I could use hmm. that and honestly, the rationalist sphere giving me a lot of understanding of evolution, being a blind idiot God, I'm able to pick up a lot of that stuff. Like, I think we just teach biology backwards because yeah. we want to make it easy for kids. And I'm, I'm going to toss thermodynamics in there as another thing that I think is really important to have in understanding of biology because that's like... Energy flows, yeah. Energy flows, yeah. Because evolution is all about that. And mm -hmm. sort of having the kind of information theoretic perspective, almost like signals theory from thermodynamics... And bringing that to biology, I think, is super valuable and as yet underexploited as an avenue for uh, generating greater biological understanding. 100% I agree. And I think the thing that bothers me is, so when I did thermo, mm. our professor told us that there are two ways to learn thermo. You can memorize the formulas first, and then you can try to learn the quantum physics second. Mm. The first one is easier, but it's just brute force. Mm. If you learn the quantum physics first, and then you see how the formulas shake out of the quantum physics, it's a lot harder at first, but then all of the formulas and everything is easy. You don't need to memorize anything. Hmm. And he, I was very blessed that he did it the second way, even though I barely got a C in that class. <laughs> I'm not good at thermo. Yeah. But because he did it that second way, everything just became more intuitive. And I kind of hate the fact that as a culture we have used the word quantum physics to describe magic effectively so people are intimidated <sighs> yep. like i tutor so many people that's one of the ways i make money and the number of people who hear what i'm interested in are like oh man that's so over my head i'm like no guys it's really not like it's annoying it's difficult to wrap your head around at first but I don't think it's any harder than my neighbor who's an electrician and his job can kill him. <laughs> like, I've never had to worry about that when I was doing a formula. <laughs> yeah, I think people often sort of underestimate the the difficulty of those kind of like relatively niche areas. They, they think that they're outside of their capability. But when you like, if you work at it, you can get there with most things, right? It's just a question of, Picking a thing that you can actually have the time to actively maintain working at 
uh, right? Uh, there are some well, there's that, of, and having a good learning process, as we yeah. talk about in the Guild mm -hmm. of the Rose with our meta learning class that I did Absolutely a few weeks ago. Helps. Like mm -hmm. one of the big things that shifted me is when I read the sequences by Yudkowsky, and he had the non-mysterious explanation of quantum physics, which I highly recommend to everyone. One of the big breakthroughs is he's like, the universe is not mysterious. It's your brain that is thinking about it the wrong way. Mm -hmm. Atoms aren't these little marbles that float around. You should think about it more like you're in a sea of energy and they're like little bits of crystallized ice and just like ice, like a snowflake in the water is like honestly halfway between solid and liquid. Mm -hmm. That's why you get all those weird properties with atoms. And I was like, that's. That's what I wish someone would have told me hmm. when I was 18. So like finding the right sources makes a big difference, because if I hear another physicist talk about how mysterious quantum physics is, I'm going to slap them. I'm going to slap them and I'm going to be kicked out of academia and then I'm going <laughs> to laugh and you're going to laugh at me. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. It, it's not don't have a. A, a, a good intuitive explanation of the stuff that they have readily to offer i mean there are weird counterintuitive aspects of it but you can do much better at having a a good mental model that serves as a serviceable analogy that you can get your head around to reason about stuff okay like so here is the analogy i always give for uh when you see an electron jumping through shells hmm. if you ever go kayaking in a river you will notice that sometimes the rocks will create whirlpools and eddies and you can stop at one of them. And I don't know if you've ever done this when you're a kid, but stick your hand in a whirlpool and sometimes it will disappear and another whirlpool will reappear somewhere else. Mm -hmm. That's not because it magically fucking teleported. It's because by inputting a little bit of energy and matter, that one was disrupted and another one was formed simultaneously just because the flows of energy changed. Nothing jumped. There was mm -hmm. no magical experience yeah. there. But that... <laughs> Oh my god, uh, now I'm just ranting about how I'm furious. And I think part of the reason I'm bothered mm. by this is I have a book by Richard Feynman mm. about uh, quantum electrodynamics, mm. and he makes this mistake too, and I'm more forgiving of him because he was on the cutting edge at the time, but I'm like, the fact that we're still using the same language to describe it 50 years later is mm. a failure of the academic community on the highest level of communication. Like, what have we done? Yeah, yeah, I, I think... I... Like, relativity isn't like that. Relativity was impossible to understand when Einstein wrote it, but now you can teach it to a smart senior in high school. Mm. Well, why mm. is quantum physics not in that route? Yeah, I, I think there's a... Yeah, it's another one of our failings of communication in science is we don't pay enough attention to the the final layer of communicating stuff in a way that we can actually like understand well. Right, there's not enough effort put into the kind of um, like the communication of our scientific work uh, mm -hmm. to the broader public and indeed to uh, like just in teaching, right, to, to students, right. We, we spend a lot of time trying to come up with this new stuff, but then fail to really explain it properly to anyone outside of a niche and we get the people into the niche the hard way <laughs> i mean <laughs> i i agree with you 100 hmm. percent. i believe that this is a communication issue across the spectrum and it's going back to our earlier point hmm. a side effect of siloing 
You don't realize how much more you need to communicate and clarify when the inferential gap among most of the people in your life is very small. So when you meet someone who it's a chasm, Mm. you just don't have the skills. Yeah. Um, That's bringing it back again to the the new species of specialists who are specialist generalists who can do that bridging work between the niches. I mean, I will say this. The hardest part about trying to be a specialist generalist in the Mm. STEM fields is the fact that nobody has agreed on constants. Constance. It's the most annoying thing. If if I look at a K, I'm like, I have no idea what this means. There are seven different things this K could stand for in this equation. I yeah. hate you all. Like yeah, if I um... could, if I was God or Napoleon or something, and I could change science in one way, I would just have as many fields as possible come together and just agree on a standard set of notation. That's it. I wouldn't do anything else. <laughs> just like, uh, please yeah. all agree on the same variables, and I will never bitch again. What's what's the the XKCD comic? with the standards right it's, oh, it's God. the same problem it's yes <laughs> though apparently they finally solved that in europe by making apple go to the USB-C charger they just had uh, that court case it won't last that's the answer <laughs> the law <laughs> it's about the only thing that'll make it stick it seems yeah <laughs> i mean i literally wrote a paper about why napoleon was the most important person in scientific history And Mm. it's because as part of the revolution, the French Revolution, like one of their chants was freedom, brotherhood and the and the kilo, Mm. because people didn't have standardized weights. So landlords would be like, pay me in wheat. And then they'd like bilk them by changing the weights. um, So when Napoleon took over in order to keep the people like going, he's the one that created the metric system and pushed for it so hard. And he was the first. Yeah, he was the first government that paid scientists. Like he was the first person to have like paid government scientists, mostly for war, but he was the one that effectively created that. Hmm. There was a similar thing at some point in Chinese history where mm-hmm. once they devised the standard sets of weights and measures, it was uh, punishable by death to be interfering with the weight standards of your like Good. you know regional. <laughs> Good. If you yeah. break into that room in Switzerland where they have the standardized kilo, you should be put in front of a firing squad. Yeah. <laughs> like that that's was... important. People don't realize how important that is until very much yeah. later. That was the attitude of Imperial China to their like regional <laughs> weight standards. <laughs> oh my god, I just don't even know how to deal with the lack of coordination between the smartest people in the world is one of the most staggering things to me. And Hmm. I think it's part of the reason why I was, why I'm so motivated in this community. I don't know what it is about you, but for me, honestly, I feel like I'm an idiot in most of the conversations. And that is genuinely a good thing. Mm -hmm. It means that I'm around people who are very brilliant and can make the world better. And then I'm like, you, you guys can't even have like trying to get three academics or rationalists in a room to just plan something out feels like fighting three cats that are wet. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, that's been a problem for much of my experience with uh, this community and, and like the, I mean, I kind of came to it through the sort of atheist, humanist, skeptic um, Mm -hmm. movement in, in, uh, in a back when new atheism was big. And I was. Uh, I guess. Yeah. I guess this would be the time in the podcast where we give some of our background. So yeah, if you want sure. to talk about it, and then I'll jump in. I mean, yeah, my my background to the rationalist movement was yeah, like I I came to it from those kind of uh, atheist things, right? I, I ended I, no, 
I got into some debates with some Christians <laughs> uh, about some stuff I found unreasonable about their religion. <laughs> I, I was very lucky. I was raised around Coptic Orthodox people and Lutheran mm. people, which are two denominations that encourage questioning. So while I don't consider myself a Christian anymore, I had a very soft break from the church. <laughs> um, I found it because... Errol uh, introduced me to Harry Potter and the methods of rationality and the sequences simultaneously. Mm. And while I very much enjoyed HPMOR, the sequences was one of the most painful experiences of my entire life. Because until that point, I was one of those kids that when they gave me that, like, what will you be in the future test? The answers were priest, lawyer, politician, and at the bottom was engineer. Mm. Like, I effectively was training to be a master of the dark arts and it was what <laughs> the way i was thinking so reading the sequences was like having yudkowsky every day i'd read an essay and having him punch me in the gut and being like everything you everything about the way you think is wrong but mm. in the words of one of my friends liam i have too much pride to stay wrong when i've been pointed out that i have been wrong so i just kind of kept sticking through it and then about Five years ago, six years ago, I visited my brother in Denver, Colorado, and I was like, oh, the people from the Bayesian Conspiracy, the podcast I've been listening to, live here. Let me see if they're doing anything. And they had a meetup by dumb luck the week I was there, and I ended up meeting them. And that's kind of what got me from just talking to Errol and me and him reading into being a part of the broader community. Hmm. Nice. Huh. Yeah. First time I met Matt Freeman and... uh. Steven and Enios, I think I was really drunk and ranting about uh, how dumb it is that people didn't take Trump seriously. <laughs> and then I was uncomfortably correct. <laughs> yeah, I, I did. I didn't. I did not take him as seriously as I probably should have done. But uh, here's what convinced uh, me. Hmm. Uh, Douglas Adams. Or no, it's Scott Adams. I'm sorry. Scott Adams is the guy who writes the Dilbert comics. Uh, and he is a yeah. right wing, mm. crazy fascist, insane person. But he called Trump's election very, mm. very early. It's kind of how he got popular recently. And his first essay was pretty much saying, I did a lot of hypnotism classes. One of the things they teach you in hypnotism is not everyone is hypnotizable. It's only about one third of the population. When I see Donald Trump, I see the most amazing and skilled hypnotist I've ever seen in my entire life on stage. Mm. And then he went into essays talking about how Donald Trump's role models were like evangelical preachers who had come from the New Age self-help community. And Oof. he's like, he's going to win <laughs> because yeah. he knows how to convince, like uh, winning a third of the U.S. population is a landslide victory. Mm. It literally took like hundreds of thousands of deaths and the economy collapsing and everything else for him to barely lose. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, when I heard that argument, I was very scared because I was like, listen, I think Scott Adams is a dick, but I've heard some of his other predictions. And when he's willing to make a prediction, he has a good track record of being right. Wouldn't mm. want to have dinner with the dude, but I'm <laughs> listening to someone who's right that often. Mm. And mm. since that moment, I got really worried I think he was on uh, Sam Harris's podcast talking about that. Oh yeah, he's yeah. insane. I yeah, 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 he made no sense. He's he has been brain he brainwashed himself into thinking 
that the tools of hypnotism and affecting his own thinking are actually tools that allow you to manipulate reality, which makes uh, you a crazy person because you hmm. believe that your thoughts are reality. The postmodern era or a related species of it. Yep. Yes. <laughs> and it's very... Uh, Whenever I see him, I go there, but for the grace of God, go I. <laughs> like, I could have seen myself going down that route. But yep. yeah, I, I heard that and I was like, oh, I don't like this. And all of his points about Trump are pretty solid. Hmm. That and Hillary Clinton was the most unpopular politician in like American history. Yeah. The fact that they shoved her down our throats when Bernie Sanders like... The fact that Bernie Sanders even got close to beating her should have been a giant red flag to the entire mm. Democratic Party that like, yo, this senator who is barely known and sounds like Groucho Marx is like beating your like a, like is a real competitor. Mm. Not a good sign for y'all. Uh, unrealistic, but I, I, wish, I wished Andrew Yang had won the Democratic nomination. He was my favorite from the field. I mean, I'm a Bernie Sanders person, <laughs> mostly because I don't even think, I think Bernie Sanders is the only one who knows how to do politics properly because he's a very old school person. He That's, knows that you go <laughs> above board and then you work your way down. <laughs> you don't do this thing that Democrats do now where you argue against yourself and then the Republicans just wipe you with, like wipe the floor with you. I don't understand this. Like, yeah, yeah, you push for, crazy shit like universal health care and uh like a month of vacation all that and you know what you'll get maybe they'll lower the age of medicare and medicaid mm -hmm. and maybe we'll move to a 32-hour yeah. work week like this, you go the, above and beyond and then you move down this is because of the two-party system again right you, you you guys need the ability to fracture into more things than a binary or that way I you agree. have the ability to have those extremes and pick something moderate and like force compromise because you, you can't force the compromise in your current model it's not <laughs> no you can't and the republicans won't mm. ever accept the model you're saying because it will weaken their like they have gerrymandered so badly that Democrats need to win by 5% just to break even. Hmm. Uh, I, I do wonder, though, to what degree the uh, the sort of never-Trump Republicans... They don't matter. They're will, gone. There's such a small margin that they are not valuable. They, they're gone from the party, but the, I think that that's part of the... Like, part of the, the problem, right? It, it, People will increasingly uh, perceive the cooling. Yeah, you have the evaporative cooling effect. Right? That's been going on for for years with the left and the right of American politics. But like, you, you need enough, you need enough people who have you know cooled off outside the system that they can you know, come back with something to try and get the reform right. Because if you're left with two hard cores of insanity and in marginally different directions, <laughs> then like eventually something's got to come to a head. I mean, the thing that I don't like about that particular argument is like the left has no power and the woke left that seems to have cultural power is hated hmm. by the actual left. Yeah, yeah. Like, I don't know anyone who hates Kamala Harris as much as actual leftists do. Hmm. Like, I think my Republican friends make jokes about it, but they don't know the vitriol hmm. that Bernie bros have for the woman because she is parading herself 
with the garments of progressivism while doing everything wrong. Mm -hmm. And that is the extremism. Like I see the conservatives and the Republicans being one extreme and then the corporate Democrats being the other extreme. And then they use the they blame the leftists every time something goes wrong. Mm. Like, I don't even think the leftists are right most of the time, but they deserve to be respected and not gaslit by like representatives. Like that's pretty shitty. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't even know what well, to say. I, I do have to ask, I do have to ask though, because <laughs> I've been looking at British politics and oh, yeah, I just, we're, we're not in a good shape either. No. Yeah. And I just have to ask, like, how did you guys get your discount Trump like this much in trouble? Like he somehow, like there was like a few months there where people were like, mm. Boris Johnson is trying his best. He's really like stepping up. And I was like, what, what is this? And then all these pictures came out and he's like partying and shit. And I'm like, God damn it, Boris, you really, you really <laughs> turned it around for like three months. I genuinely believed he was going to be remembered as one of the okay prime ministers. Nah, nope. They was never going to pull that off. <laughs> he had three months there. He should have like enjoyed the limelight while he had it. Everything was going okay for him people felt bad for him because he yeah. got covid and didn't die hmm. but uh, yeah i think i think at this point he may have actually damaged the conservatives party of uh, party's um chances of re-election at the next general because of, well, of how uh how negatively he's currently perceived and i think the infighting in the conservatives that kind of um knocked rishi sunak who was the chancellor of the exchequer the the um uh what's the i don't there's not really an equivalent position per se in uh, i suppose treasury secretary but you know, it's a lot more politically relevant um in boris's government he uh he was very popular but uh i'm pretty sure boris's people leaked some stuff about his um financial situation being like He's he's ridiculously wealthy, um, and there was some tax evasion thing. Well, not evasion. That's um, yeah, uh, not evasion. To clarify, <laughs> uh, this is the most tax... British thing you've ever said to me. <laughs> he didn't quite do tax evasion. <laughs> yeah, ta tax evasion, right? You know, it's it's not evasion. It's not avoidance. It's it's something somewhere in between. No, I just maybe, happened for to legal forget purposes. to do it. I just happened to forget to do it for a decade. You know, it slips anyone's mind from time to time. Yeah, yeah, but. Uh, in any case, yeah, he he was doing well. He's now doing much less well, Bad. probably because yeah. of Boris. Um, and yeah, this whole scandal is dragging the and party you know down. Who called it? You know who called it? Dominic Cummings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's, I mean, um, <laughs> that's a wild invasion if I've ever seen one. Yeah, he's an interesting guy. He's. Uh, I wanted to teach a class for the guild one day on realpolitik hmm. and how to view the world with the eyes of a, a like effective politician because the fact that he mm. even got brexit through and got boris elected are minor miracles like yeah. he really might be the most intelligent political operator i've seen since carl rove in the united states helping george w bush like he is a genius level intellect yeah, do i agree with the, good. i don't even agree with all of his political conclusions but i actually agree yep. with a lot of his assessment it isn't fair that the british people are subject mm. to laws from brussels that they don't really have a say in like his conclusions were right i don't think the way he wanted to go about it was right but like anyone who is that smart and that <sighs> effective 
I would love to have dinner with the man. Oh, also, yeah. he seems like the kind of person who wouldn't take any bullshit whatsoever from mm -hmm. anyone, but would be incredibly funny with a good sense of dry humor if you mm -hmm. were at all like listening and humble. Yeah, yeah. I, I'd uh, definitely like to sit down and have a conversation with the man. I think he'd be a really interesting, uh, uh, yeah, very interesting person to talk to. I don't agree with all of his political positions, but... Yeah, I think he even he even had some kind of vaguely rationalist adjacent stuff on his blog. Um, yeah, like yeah. he's he's one of us, and yeah. I would like to talk to him. This is my belief about Bayesians in the wild, which is a term, uh, listeners, where so being a Bayesian, which we've referenced several times, means using Bayes theory, which summarized at its simplest point says. When you're not sure between two positions on an issue, take the evidence you have for both sides and then multiply both sides of that by how much you trust the evidence and then look at the math. Just that extra step of comparing not just the data, but how much you trust the sources of that data makes you a Bayesian. Now, putting hard numbers on that makes you a good Bayesian. Hmm. But just starting to think that way is the heart of being a rationalist, in my opinion. And it's very lonely. Like, it must be incredibly lonely if you're not part of the community to think this way, because it's mm. a little bit of a mental gymnastics thing you have to practice doing, but it has such dividends in your life. But until you can explain it, that that's how you're thinking to people, they just look at you like you're from Mars or something. Mm -hmm. Do you think that's an adequate explanation of Bayes' theory without any numbers? Uh, I, I, I doubt I can do any better, so it'll do for now. <laughs> Sounds good. But yeah, I, I would mm. love for him to just teach because I'm like, bro, you must be so alone in a world where you're Dominic coming and you have to live and talk to people like Boris Johnson constantly. Like that sounds like a low grade form of torture to me. Yeah, I and think I'm it's like, why there are so few STEM people in politics. Do you know my dream job? Mm. Congress used to have a scientific advising office. Yeah, it was there. They got yeah. Rid of yep. And uh, early 90s, and you can just watch the decision-making process on a chart just go downhill quickly. Uh, yep. I would love to have that job. I think I am good enough at explaining things that I could explain it while being apolitical and giving them, like, the consequences on both sides. Hmm. And the sad thing is, like, there are some decent Republican scientific positions that they're not advocating for properly by just denying science entirely. Yep. Yep. That was positions on the left and have a similar valence <laughs> i mean uh. i will never understand so here's a good example of the left not advocating the research well hmm. and how it gets misconstrued by the right uh my brother's fiance charlie hey charlie if you're listening to this had not had a disagreement she was like biden is giving people free needles so they can just shoot up heroin and i was like yeah that's a great idea and she was shocked by it i was like yeah they've done this in europe and they've done the research and it has at least three main side effects one if you're a heroin addict and you know there's one part of town where you won't get arrested doing heroin you're all going to go there which means it cleans up the streets two a lot of them die from infections and this stops that. And three, if you know there's one area where you can do heroin and then you can go talk to a counselor and there won't be any risk of a cop arresting you, chances you'll do it are much higher. And we've shown that was the rates are going down. Yep. And to Charlie's credit, she was like, oh, that's really interesting. I'm not sure if I agree with it, but those are really good points. Hmm. Like no one had ever expressed this. And I get why the right wing doesn't express this, but the left wing doesn't do it either. Like this is good data on their side and they just don't 
clearly say it. Yep. I mean, if scientists don't explain themselves, what the fuck is the excuse for politicians <laughs> whose job is to ramble at us? Yep. It's, uh, it, yeah. I mean, the, the Swiss and the Portuguese did that particularly successfully. And it's mm-hmm. the sort of failure to communicate it is bizarre. I mean, yeah. the nice thing about the federated system of the United States mm. is we always do eventually get there because there's always some states that are like, yo, we need the money we or we got to fix this problem. And they're desperate enough to try it. And then it does mm. spread. Yeah. I yeah. mean, it but took the, the 10 Swiss years. Have a similar thing. Like 10 right? years. Yeah. But medical marijuana is legal in like more than three quarters of the United States. I mean, I have a medical marijuana card. I just went to the dispensary today. <laughs> Had a good deal. I got something called. What is this? Oh, yeah. Uh, ISO Growers Reserve Purple Elephants. God, I love the names. <laughs> uh, that's a fun name. I wish everything was named the way they named weed. Like, that's what the way they should name pharmaceuticals. I don't want to take Zoloft and Chantex. I want to take, like, Teddy Roosevelt's train wreck <laughs> pills or some shit. Like, that's hilarious. Yeah. I'm all about that. Let There's me look it up online. a bunch of, like, really weird rules about how you can name drugs. And, I, yeah, the, it's the similar, like, another one of those, why can't we agree on a standard? Like, they call them different things in different countries. This is the stupid. It's it's actively dangerous. Why are we doing this? <laughs> I I could understand uh, if there's a company doing some legal loophole shenanigans, but I don't even think that's the case in this point. Maybe, nope. maybe it was at first, but like definitely not anymore. It's basically marketing bullshit, and I just like uh, that drives me nuts. <sighs> Well, I am very excited because I'm pretty sure that the pharmaceutical industry is about to get rocked very pain, very painfully in the next like 12 years or so. And here is my suspicion. I think they're going to have to move entirely to medical devices. Excuse me. I have hiccups and uh, like new materials and stuff like that and surgeries. Because a lot of pharmaceuticals, so I don't know if you've heard, but there's an entire like movement of what they call your grandfather's chemistry, mm-hmm. where people use base resources like cat litter and stuff. Like it looks like they're making meth. It's <laughs> I very much worry about them, mm-hmm. but they're going through the process of making their own pure stock so they can make whatever they want. Mm-hmm. On top of that, it's getting easier and easier to order, if not precursors chemicals that are derivatives that you can then turn back into the precursors with not that much organic chemistry knowledge. And Mm -hmm. the last piece of this puzzle that really makes me convinced is actually a research paper about computer science that Errol showed me about six months ago. Mm -hmm. Some researchers trained a neural net on all 455,000 known organic chemistry reactions, and it Mm -hmm. learned them all. And the idea was first they gave it like some simple goals. Like if we give you this precursor chemicals, what reactions would you do to get this chemical result at the end? And it gave them the very standard results. But then they were like, well, what if we want to do this? And the I have to send you the paper then. But it discovered that by using a single chemical step, it could actually purify three of them at once by causing a precipitate and a thing uh, to fall to the surface simultaneously oh, that's cool. instead of like seven steps. So it shortened it from a 10 hour process to two. Hmm. So if you have this kind of software, 
basic chemistry knowledge to help mm. you out and a basic lab, a lot of drugs that are proprietary are just going to be so easy to bootleg and mm. at a pretty decent quality that they're just not going to be profitable to make. That reminds me quite a lot of a science fiction book by Annalene Newitz called mm -hmm. Autonomous, where there's a researcher who does something pretty similar as kind of a... Uh, uh, um, yeah, I'm not really sure. it's not exactly a side gig, right? She basically becomes like a, a bootleg drug synthesis um, person, <laughs> and is you know embroiled in uh, avoiding the uh, sort of you know intellectual property based assertions of like you can't make this stuff. It's our it's our uh, IP proprietary. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, the other sign of this is. So years and years ago, I had a friend who sold me psychedelic drugs straight mm. from a research chemist. Mm. So I got to experiment with some very rare, weird stuff at the time, like two mm. CBs, two CT2, a bunch of stuff in that family. This was like 2009 to 2012. Mm. That stuff was incredibly hard to get. And the research process, like making it was really difficult. Mm. I just saw a vice special saying that the number one party drug in Ibiza is called pink cocaine, and it's just 2CB, huh. which means sometime in the last 10 years, someone figured out a way to industrialize the process and got it going. I don't know who it is. Hmm. My sister goes to Ibiza a lot, so I might be going to Spain and doing some hands-on research. <laughs> but I am like, that is shocking to me because mm. like it, there had to have been some breakthrough in the process because I remember that it would cost me an arm and a leg and it was very difficult to get normally. Mm. So I some mean, major breakthroughs have happened. A decent chunk of that often comes from some kind of production volume related issue, right? There's a Like scaling up yeah, the production exactly. facility. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure that is a big part of it, but like even still, I read the original book where the so the book where the first chemist created this is called Pycol and Tycol, Bitafetamines mm -hmm. I Have Known and Loved and Tryptamines I Have Known and Loved, written by <laughs> Alexander Shulgin. The mm. first half of each book is a biography of his life, and the second part is a full chemist guide to making all 275 drugs he invented, as well as trip reports of every single time he <laughs> tried them with his family and friends. Okay, uh, that goes on the reading list. <laughs> It's the number one book owned by both drug dealers and the DEA. Mm. <laughs> um, but yeah, like I've read the process and I'm like, this would be kind of a bitch to make. I, mm. I will send it to you. And I think it's free online. The chemical part is all free online. He published it because mm. it's just organic chemistry, technically. Mm -hmm. By the way, fun fact, he invented all these things while working for the FBI. He was like a private researcher. And so whenever they got a new drug, the FBI would contract him to figure out what it was. And he would like hmm. reverse the chemical analysis of what the drug was made of and how it was processed and made. But he was essentially just a four hire scientist. So he'd spend hmm. his own free time just like making new drugs and trying them out. <laughs> yep. This is uh, like the necessity to having people who can do that is precisely why that it's another one of those problems with the the intellectual property thing bring it back full circle to that concept right it's the um at the moment cybersecurity researchers are more or less actively forbidden from doing research on certain things because in order to do it it would be breaking people's like drm it would be uh you know uh, 
infringing on people's copyright. Do they copyright. expect that the black hat hackers aren't doing this, or do they all just want to get that payday when everything goes wrong on those day zeros? I'm not sure which one your bosses are expecting, but one of those two things will happen. They, they're clearly not anticipating either, because they, the incentive structure is just backwards for cybersecurity stuff, right? There's, it's constantly trying to prove a negative, because when they do their job, nothing happens. Right. <laughs> yeah. That's like when the military does their job, I'm not at war. Exactly. That's right. a success. <laughs> Although we seem to have figured out how to get the military paid even when there isn't a war, <laughs> which is not at all what has happened so far with uh, cybersecurity. <laughs> you know what? No. I do have some negative views on this, and that my opinion is that as Russia and China start to fall apart, the risk of nuclear war is devastating for both of them and they know they'd lose so they're probably going to escalate cyber warfare and mm. that's going to start teaching companies and governments exactly how serious it is oh yeah like here is something for our listeners to think about think about the next time there's a weird outage like half of amazon servers go down they're like oh we had technical difficulties this is the most like powerful company on earth mm. do you really think they had technical difficulties or do you think maybe there is a higher chance that there is sabotage? And any one I mean, of those, I would go with technical difficulties. Any one incident, you hmm. should chalk up yeah. to technical Especially difficulties. because of how centralized they are. There's a lot of single points yeah. of failure. But you, I have noticed a strong uptick in those stories in the last like three to six months, and they're only yep. going to go up. And you should assume at a certain point that they don't want to tell you they got hacked by the Russians and a bunch mm. of data got stolen. So start reading between the lines and you'll see that it's escalating pretty quickly. Yeah. Hell, very scarily, I heard that some uh, some hacker in China figured out how to get into the water purification plant of a city mm -hmm. and nearly poisoned everyone by just dumping in too much chlorine. Because you should have a small amount to clean it out. Mm -hmm. But, you know, as they say with medicine, dosage is the poison. Yep. Yeah, that was... Uh... Uh, I remember that one. Gary. Uh, that's also happened in Australia. Similar thing. Someone got into a water treatment um, plant control system. Listen, they, if yeah. they can survive the giant jumping spiders, I'm sure they drink chlorine <laughs> on, next to their barbecues and it'll be fine. Yeah, yeah, it's fine. But, but yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's, uh, it's another situation where like um, the US is kind of unfortunately leading the direction the wrong way on the cybersecurity stuff, right? you're super focused you have uh, on offensive capability right? you have uh, mm -hmm. what's it uh, us cyber command which is mm -hmm. out of the nsa and they are basically just collecting a massive inventory of vulnerabilities in everyone else's software right all of these unknown like unpatched vulnerabilities they're just making a massive database of them uh, uh yeah they're tr and then so when they, they need to make them. the next stocknet which can mm -hmm. Like, I did not realize how scary Stuxnet was until I watched a documentary about it in the last, mm. like, three months. But they exploited, like, five different zero days simultaneously to make yeah. that thing work. And I'd uh... never even heard of that. Like, I, I'm not a big tech guy. My, my strength is not technology, but even I understand how ridiculously dangerous something like that is. That's constant, right? The, the black market for zero days is huge, mm. especially in things like 
um, iOS and Android, right? And people are sold, like they sell multi-million dollar zero days to people like the NSO group um, who are like uh, uncharitably described as mercenary hackers out of Israel, but they're uh, kind of, you know, they, they try and put a positive spin on it. But yeah, they're uh, many ways very not good. But the... Uh, like the thing to do to fix that is not to just like make a massive list of all the zero days. It's to do responsible disclosure on all the zero days. So everyone's stuff actually is secure rather than like accumulating a massive list of things that you could exploit because like it screws you too, right? All, all your own like, stuff is full of those vulnerabilities. Right? I mean, they Get have to do a game theory theoretic where they're like mm. are the are our enemies doing the same thing yeah because like if you assume your enemies are also collecting zero days then mm. there's no reason you would want to give them patches for their software when you have no faith that if they catch a hole in your software they're not going to give it to you they're just going to keep that exploit so it's a trust thing who's going to disarm first the thing is like, it's not until like, it, it, it you you could probably like with with the US's current position I, you could recruit the rest of the western world into collaborating in an effort to do those kind of disclosure things and you you'd catch a lot of the stuff right okay maybe you'd have a few critical vulnerabilities that remain undisclosed that the chinese and the russians keep under their hats but if you actually made that the stance of like uh, we have a, a no offensive cybersecurity policy. It's all defensive. Anytime we find a zero day, we will, you know, do responsible disclosure. We'll get it patched, right? You could lead the way on that. And I think you'd still come out ahead because it you make the process just a lot harder of finding those vulnerabilities in the first place. And it leaves you a lot less exposed because it's not just about the fact that they exist. It's about how... Um, it's about whether or not people patch in time, right? So if you have that, if you have that culture of just like trying to make better software, you will have a lot less random old zero days lying around in your infrastructure uh, that can be exploited by people who are trying to exploit them than mm. if you just have a, a, a much better solid defense, right? I, I it just, uh, yeah, I, I don't, I. I I'm I'm not convinced that the the game theoretic logic applies in the way that it they they seem to currently think it does. I, I think you, you'd actually be better off just playing it defensive rather than offensive, even with the attacker's advantage. I no. think I think you're actually right about this in the case of the United States. Yeah, just because we have such a lead. Exactly. Like, right. You, you, it wouldn't you do work it now, if we were all work. equal. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Especially if you bring Europe and a lot of the other like Western aligned, technologically sophisticated people with you, which you probably would, then you could get out ahead of it. But yeah, and if we retain this stance, then we're, you know we're all screwed because everything is just going to be completely broken forever. <laughs> And anyone, any, you know, any hacker in someone's basement can, you know, bring down critical infrastructure on the other side of the world <laughs> with the right bit That's of information. Fine. You know what? <laughs> Humans only learn 
when it's too, like not quite too late, but we'll go right to the edge. What's Does that seem to old be the way, quote? Doesn't it? Yeah. What's that old quote about Winston? What Winston Churchill said: Americans will always do the right thing after they've gone through every other option. <laughs> yes, that sounds about Something right. Like yeah, that. it also sounds um, like Winston. I believe we will get to a point where that is the way people think, but mm. it won't happen until some major politicians and rich people get affected and they realize like, oh, we can't insulate ourselves from these effects. Yeah. Like, They're already being affected, is, but it yeah. hasn't hit the critical threshold yet. MBS bugged Jeff Bezos's phone with WhatsApp. Right? This is this is already happening to them. <laughs> People have and, died uh, as a result of cybersecurity incidents. It's, and it's going to keep escalating. Yeah. But right now, yeah. everyone can just be like, well, I'm not important enough or it's individuals. But when it starts happening in mass scales, people mm -hmm. are going to be like, oh, we're coming up on that point, by the way. It, it is like, it's, honestly, yeah. it's going to happen in the next three to five years. Yeah, uh, it's already underway. The, it's just like we're on like the, the steeper part of the upslope. <laughs> everyone. Here's the thing. It's possible right now. It's just a waiting game. Yeah. It's literally just a waiting game, which is terrifying to think about. But that is the way I see it. Like, hmm. gonna happen somewhere soonish. And I don't want to be in the town or city that discovers that first. Hmm. I hope it is something that is bad enough that gets attention, but not so bad that people lose their lives. But as someone who's been spending the last two years listening to the podcast, well, there's your problem about engineering disasters. Mm. Don't have a lot of faith in America's infrastructure right now and making <laughs> things work out. Yeah. yeah. I, it's, did you it's, know we got a D minus on our infrastructure? I did hear the that. The only thing, the only thing we didn't get a, a D, C or F in was dams. We got a B minus, which is good. <laughs> dams are a thing you don't want to get an F in. Yeah, but like. <laughs> Dams are dangerous. If mm -hmm. the dam disasters have killed hundreds of thousands of people in China. Oh, right? the Yangtze River in China yeah. and its flooding has killed millions of people over thousands of years. Yeah, yeah. it's pretty bad. Uh, yeah, way worse than nuclear, which like another thing that the left, uh, well, it's not always the left, but like a lot of the time people on the left have gotten very wrong because of bad communication about the science. I mean, Although, ironically in France it's like all the nuclear people are communists, so I don't know why it hasn't translated elsewhere. It's weird, but uh, Um yeah. I will say that real leftists, like the the one when I say a real leftist, hmm. my standard is someone who has done actual organization. Okay, yeah, yeah. Hmm. That that like someone who's put their skin in the game. Yeah. And Chapo Trap House for all of their arrogance actually did that they raised money they went door to door to knock on doors to raise like they're real hmm. and they're the first ones to say like yeah like nuclear power is a really good idea we kind of wish we'd done it earlier mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah germany is uh, where i'm living at the moment is particularly screwed on that point especially right oh, now germany's <laughs> so fucked environmentally because they're so far north yep. that their solar panels are, don't pay for the energy and their carbon offset they're going back to lignite coal what the fuck i know it's uh, I, the, it was thorium it, it's everywhere <laughs> it's fucking everywhere but it's not it's not it's not even just like you know everyone likes the the sexy lift liquid fluoride salt thorium reactors but like, yeah it's nice 
There's, there's the old designs, the ones we have in the U.S. They're yeah. not like the fanciest, but they're pretty yeah. goddamn safe. I mean, okay. Th there's a I lot live of near new, Three Mile small Island modular reactor designs with That's passive true. safety that are much better, but not necessarily like you know the sexy new thorium stuff. That I'd take over the old like active safety requiring reactor designs. Well, but this is yeah. the thing that frustrates me. Hmm. Uh, I live near Three Mile Island, and I had an internship at one point where I worked at the Philadelphia Electric Company, Pico, mm -hmm. and they actually took me to Peach Bottom Nuclear Power Plant and, mm -hmm. like, Three Mile Island. Mm -hmm. And one of the things they told us is, we have a passive system. If no one had been in the office that day, it all would have fixed itself. It, the only reason we got so close to a meltdown is because humans kept fucking with it. Because the sensor was broken, so mm. they thought they had to fuck with it, but the machine was working fine. Like, if uh. we had just left it alone, it would have shut down on its own very safely. Uh, whoops. Yeah. Yeah. By the way, that was also the day I got to feel like Homer Simpson. Because I showed up there the day after the Philadelphia set... Which team was it? It was when Philadelphia won the World Series. And my boss had told me it was the only day I was allowed to show up to work hungover. And I forgot I was doing this nuclear plant thing. Hmm. So I was completely hungover, like droopy face, cartoonishly <laughs> bad. And I show up and there's like coffee and donuts and I'm eating a pink glazed donut hungover in a nuclear power plant. I was like, the Homer Simpson <laughs> life is not bad. I've, uh, I've seen it and yeah. I've seen the top of the mountain. It isn't bad. And everyone there pretty much told me it's a lot like The Simpsons in the sense that, like, you really don't want anything to be happening. If things are happening, bad things are happening. <laughs> Nuclear power plants should be an incredibly boring, boring job. Place. Yeah. Mm -hmm. They but, told me that the head engineer told me in 20 years he never he had to do the most. I'm sorry, let me rephrase that. The most complex math he'd had to do in 20 years of being a nuclear engineer at Peach Bottom Nuclear Power Plant is once there was a mild emergency and he had to do trigonometry. <laughs> <laughs> and he was like, I've never had to do calculus. I've never had to do differential equations. If you had if it's not automated and you have to do that by hand, you're in the shit like shit. You should be running. You're near a nuclear power plant. Just run away. Uh yeah. But uh yeah, that's uh, uh yeah, I don't know what to do about that one now because we're like we should have course corrected on that like a couple decades ago in order to get the tech into a place where it would have been useful for dealing with the climate situation. And as of I now, mean, it's... Yeah. We're going to be in for at least 10 to 15 years of really bad climate stuff, even if we do everything right, just because mm. the carbon dioxide is going to have residual effects, even if we start removing it. Yeah, I personally yeah. think this is one of those fields where AI is probably going to help us because we have a lot of things in biochemistry and material science that are right on the edge of being efficient enough to be really good ways of carb pulling carbon out of the atmosphere, but none of them are quite close. Like they're all right on the borderline, but we've kind of hit a wall in our own research. And I think just a little bit of AI doing that cross generalization that you were talking about, mm -hmm. looking at different papers and looking for any similarities will be enough to push us over the edge that we'll start reducing carbon output in the next like five years. Yeah, I that's mean, my prediction that's currently. Still, I give that a 70% chance. That feels like it's still going to be almost too long of a timeline because if we get those insights, you then have to, you know, ramp up to industrial scale. And that's. That's another five years, right? And in that time, we can get more nuclear stuff done than we can get 
uh, nuclear plants take like 12 years to build even the modular ones still take eight years like there's such a long time investment i yeah, think it might be I mean, really close to break even both of those are probably going to come pretty similar timelines actually come think about yeah well i think that the smrs are actually a lot further mm -hmm. along um than i thought i was i dived back into the nuclear word a, a little bit recently listening to mm -hmm. uh uh, what was it called? Uh, the Titans of Nuclear podcast. It has a whole bunch of oh. um, extended interviews with people in the nuclear industry, and it seems like the SMR technology is a lot like closer than I was worried that it was. And there's a lot of regulatory stuff that's kind of holding it up in the last stages before it can get to production. Which so I is wouldn't pretty be reasonable when you're dealing with nuclear reactors. Yeah, I complain yeah, yeah. about government regulation, but this is not one of them. Yeah, I mean. The, the thing was, all the regulations were built to handle conventional reactors, yeah. right? Your your pressurized water and boiling water type reactors, and a lot of that just does not apply to the new designs. And so there was just like no way of passing the regulatory approval hurdles because they just like they're just completely incompatible with like you know regulations for things like for features of the plant design that just aren't present in the new designs that have to meet certain standards and there's no way of like getting past the approval process it's just <laughs> yeah and you have to explain to a bunch of legislators why it's different and yeah. how it mechanically needs to be regulated which is yeah. one of the worst situations which is like you're an engineer and you're talking to someone and you have to make suggestions about how you should be regulated because yeah. that's the only hmm. ethical thing to do. But in the back of your mind, you're like, I shouldn't be doing this because like <laughs> I like even if I'm the most honest, forthright person in the world, all bugs are shallow under many eyes. I'm hmm. probably missing something. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and like, uh, to be honest, that no, the NRC in the States has, has um, like if they'd had more money to do it quicker. It would have been much better, but they've they've done a very good job of ensuring it's done safely, and they have a oh, lot of cross-pollination with industry. How much research have you looked into fusion reactors recently? Because there's been an upwell of those, and there's one design yeah. that shocked me, because I actually think it'll work. Okay, which one? The dumbest one. That's why I have faith it'll work, because the design is so simple. I'm surprised we didn't think of it earlier. I'm curious Imagine, if, it's the same if you one. will, two pistons. Oh, the size <laughs> of trucks hitting okay. each other yeah. with a tiny pellet of deuterium causing a fusion reaction and then it pushes them apart mm. like effectively a car engine and i yeah. was like oh my god that's brilliant and they just have to be made of tungsten like and yeah every time you do that you're going to erode some of the material but like it's just a thick this is the simplest plan and i think it, it so, i looked at the math i'm like it is energy positive like this should work my favorite one is dense plasma focus. Ever heard of that one? Maybe. I'm not, fam I'm not familiar with that name, though. Describe okay. it. Yeah. So the way it works is you have uh, an electrode in a uh, sort of a, a chamber with some, some gas in it. Uh, and I think it's mostly like I think it's, uh, was it a lithium boron reaction. Um, so you have some, some uh, lithium kind of vaporized in this chamber. And and mm -hmm. uh, you pass a really powerful electrical current through these electrodes, and it's kind of like um, you have pins like around the outside, um, not quite. Uh, but uh, so you have these these pins around the outside, and then you have a tubular electrode in the middle. Um, okay. And what happens is the electrical discharge forms a 
uh, a, a um, particular shape. So you get this sort of toroidal structure. Does that, it follow the pins? Yeah, it follows up the pins and then oh, it collapses down okay. into the tubular center piece. And it coils up on itself and supercoils into a tiny little toroid, which then pinches, right? Oh. So you, you, you get this uh, like tiny little thing that just forms this plasma and pinches tight into a, a, a space where you can get the fusion. Um, but it's a really nice reaction because it's aneutronic, right? You just get three helium atoms out. You get a gamma flash and some um, some beta radiation, right? Which means you can turn it into a solid state device because the gamma and the the beta are directional, right? They come out of opposite ends of the toroid. Yeah. So if you just stick a coil on the end that spits out the gamma and like oh, so on the the beta and a gamma tuned photovoltaic on the bit that spits out the gamma then you can harness the energy from just like decelerating the, the the betas in the the, oh, the field yeah. <laughs> that is clever it's very nice yeah i wouldn't oh man that must have been so hard to figure out see i like mine cuz it's literally just the same thing we've been doing with cars yeah. for like a hundred years. Yeah, yeah. But... It came, the, the, the idea came from this guy who has like crazy alternative theories about cosmology. He's like a big bang spe skeptic, but he did a whole bunch of crazy mathematics about like um, uh, uh, topologies of ele electromagnetic fields that led him mm. to this conclusion about this uh, this toroidal shaped collapse of this plasma. Um, so, you know, that's... The, that's kind of evidence of that, that we should look at the rest of his theories a little bit more closely. <laughs> it's not 100% evidence that he's right, but... No. Hmm, yeah, that's but interesting. Like, this little device does, like, really well on the... Um, the scores of like energy in energy out for your fusion mm -hmm. processes uh relatively speaking to all of these other like much bigger and better funded projects and it's my favorite because of how kind of pretty it is like aesthetically <laughs> just you know <laughs> there is the beauty of design and then there's the beauty of efficiency and this seems to have a little bit of both yeah it has i don't like, think mine is pretty but i like mm -hmm. it because it might be the most efficient of designs like it has the the brute simplicity <laughs> <laughs> and like you can explain it to pretty much mm. anyone instantly yeah you make yeah. big smash and then mm. it pushes like gasoline mm. yeah but even things like the the nuclear reaction in this one though the, the dense part of the mm -hmm. stuff because it's it's an aneutronic reaction like you don't get um the degradation know, of the material exactly. because there's no material like hitting it and eroding it yeah uh, yeah, because like you would have to replace even my joke method, you would have to replace the material because every time you do this, it would like rip off the first layer of atoms. Yeah. And you get radionuclei generated from the neutrons that are produced in any reaction that produces stray neutrons, right? They go off and they um, activate other stuff occasionally, which causes you know, problems for managing mm -hmm. um, your waste. You know, your activated graphite is a massive sort of hazardous waste thing you have to deal with handling. You don't get that when you're dealing with aneutronic reactions. The other thing with um, like fast breeders, you get a bit less of that. So like Westinghouse is working on a lead-cooled fast breeder, which is really cool. So there's a whole bunch of yeah. uh, uh, That's really, really interesting weird. stuff. Yeah, yeah. But th I love the fact. So this is one of the reasons why I encourage so many people to study magic and conspiracy theories mm. when you talk about that dude. 
it's not that I actually think you should believe those things. That is a very unhealthy thing to do to mm. believe every wild thing. But when you choose to look at every wild thing with the same eye of a rationalist and really analyze it, you're going to come to some conclusions that are naturally going to be against the norm. Mm. And that gives you the freedom to like find the low hanging fruit everyone's missing. Like you have to be weird enough to think the Big Bang didn't happen in <laughs> order to be weird enough to discover a design as clever as that. Like yeah. I never would have thought of that. And I don't think most physicists would. But then again, most physicists would never question the Big Bang. Exactly. I mean, right. uh, one of my favorite heroes line. was the guy who started rocketry in the United States was like a huge believer in black magic and used to do rituals with Anton LaVey and uh, <laughs> what's his name? The guy from Scientology. Um, oh. Uh, L. Ron Hubbard. L. Ron Hubbard. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Have you read um, Ignition? No. No. It's a spectacular book about the early days of rocketry in the US. I've forgotten the name of the author, but uh, it, it's just hilariously sort of dry humor mixed in with quite detailed chemistry um and it just you know accounts all these crazy experiments people were doing to develop new rocket fuels in the early days of rocketry and uh like you know the <laughs> the safety standards were different non-existent <laughs> The number of people who blew up is evidence yeah. of this. Not just died in a lab, blew, blew up. up the lab. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So this uh, is. This I was is, born yeah. too late. I was yeah. born too late. I would have thrived in that time, or I would have been one of the blown people up people. I would have been yeah. like a very interesting <laughs> footnote. Like David Yusuf did remarkable research on materials to use in shells. Unfortunately, when he was like, I wonder what happens if we put napalm inside, he discovered yeah. what happens when you put napalm inside. <laughs> <laughs> There's a great quote from the book on the Wikipedia page for, um, I think it's, it's like, uh um what's the molecule it's like tri trifluorochlorine or something like i forget oh, the, the yeah. most over, like corrosive yeah. thing on earth exactly yeah the, there's a note from ignition a quote uh which is like a, a, if, if you have a fluorine fire like the, i forget exactly what it is but the the best thing to do it the best piece of equipment is a pair of good running shoes or something to that effect yes. right it's just like dude it burns leave. asbestos yeah and it like burns glass asbestos. and concrete. <laughs> <laughs> the only um, thing that holds it is like something, a metal with an oxide layer of some kind. Mm -hmm. And if you scratch the oxide layer, you're fucked. <laughs> clean it. Just accidentally clean it. Smudge yeah. it. <laughs> you have a metal fire. Yeah. yeah. Um, there is a great series of books by Charles Strauss mm. called The Laundry Series. Ah, and the those. laundry yeah hmm. and the dragons breathe out the trichlorofluoride and i that was when i was first introduced to it and i was like what is this charles strauss is a smart man he would not include this and then i wikipedia it and i was like you guys can't see my face but i'm making the uh face from the screen painting <laughs> yeah that's it's something out of a very scary horror show <laughs> It turns cells that encounter it, it turns their cytoplasm into sulfuric acid. Or, no, not sulfuric acid. Uh, uh, hydrochloric acid. Hmm. What the fuck? <laughs> it turns you into hydrochloric acid from being around it. Yeah, nasty stuff. Oh, man. <laughs> People were experimenting but with I... it for weapons. 
um, mostly the Nazis, but uh, like, and you can't even use it. It's not that, stable. That was the problem, right? <laughs> Actually, here is a here is a question I want to leave you on because I think we've been going now for two hours. I think that's a good first episode. Oh, wow. Well, yeah. Like okay. that. Hmm. <laughs> so I watch the anime Baki the Grappler, mm -hmm. which I absolutely love. And they ha brought up a story in the very first episode of the Netflix series that I double checked was true. For years, nitroglycerin only existed as an unstable chemical mm. that would be horribly hard to use. Then one day, a shipment of nitro was being sipped from uh, one part to the, sh uh, the, the Bay of Biscay. And it was a once in a century storm. And everyone thought they were going to die. But when they got there, they opened up the barrels. And what they saw was beautiful, crystallized, stable nitroglycerin, which had never stabilized before. Hmm. And after that moment, labs all over the world were independently getting stabilized crystal nitroglycerin. It's almost like as soon as it was shown to be possible, it would became possible for everyone else, mm. even though the techniques weren't necessarily the same and nothing changed before. So my question to you is this, how would you react if tomorrow they discovered a crystallized form, a stable form of fluorotrichloride? And what would that imply about your understanding of chemistry and science? Because it's one of those things that pushes me to the very edges of my rationality. Because I cannot think of a reasonable answer for this phenomenon. I genuinely can't. I have tried. Yeah, I mean, hmm. it feels like the only reasonable application of that is something in weapons tech. Which, I, there's a lot of things that we have on the table that we could make worse weapons out of than we currently have. Mm -hmm. So I'm guessing that in material terms it wouldn't actually do that much yet uh but the second part of the question is as a chemist how do you feel about the fact that for no discernible reason a hmm. molecule set that wasn't crystallizing suddenly started crystallizing at the turn of the century and did so synchronistically all over the world with researchers independently this is the kind of stuff mm. that makes fringe scientists confused. And I don't necessarily think but that it might be anything magical, a, but it is odd. That's a pattern for basically all discoveries, right? It, whenever you, If you look at the history of innovation, mm -hmm. things are concomitantly independently discovered about the same time a lot in history. In the... Every, Whenever you look at the history of a given field, you think, oh, these people discovered the same thing independently at about the same time. And for the most part, it's just, it was like... It's the in the next, zeitgeist of it, science, so yeah. everyone's thinking about the problem. It, it, the, a lot of this stuff is like just a few minor inferential steps away from the current understanding. So we, you know, a few people simultaneously make the leap, right? It, there's, it, there's enough information available to just get over the hump to get to the same conclusion at around the same time. And yeah, I, I'm no longer terribly surprised by those coincidences because it, it, it just usually, it happens a lot. Uh, usually I agree with you. Like a yeah. good example is Newton and Leibniz. Mm -hmm. Both of them had reasons to study change in really uh, fine detail. Newton mm -hmm. was looking at the motion of the stars. I believe Leibniz was actually more interested in like 
economics and like hmm. flow patterns, but they both had good reason and the mathematical tools were there. Hmm. So it makes sense that they both kind of discover calculus simultaneously from two hmm. different angles. This is a lot weirder because a lot of these people are saying like they didn't change their experiments. And the first mm. one wasn't an experiment at all. It was just a random ship traveling. Mm. I maybe there is a totally reasonable explanation. I mean, and guess listeners, if be, you guys have one, please send it. I mean, my guess is just critical mass of people moving around and manipulating nitroglycerin. Right. A lot of people were just using it a lot in some kind of application. And that's true. Eventually, you will notice that it has this property of crystallizing under these conditions if enough people are playing with it. Right. <laughs> that's true. Hmm. There's a good book. Uh. Um, what's the. It's by Matt Ridley, and it's about innovation, mm -hmm. but I forget the title. Um, I think it might just be innovation. I'd have to check. But it has a lot of uh, historical accounts of people inventing the same stuff at the same time. <laughs> I mean, what I've discovered, my analysis is that usually you have the engineering first and then someone mm. builds something for some practical use. It mm. has some weird side effect and then researchers research it later and then discover the science of what happened after we build it. Yeah, it's a pretty common pattern. Yeah. That's why I think every good scientist should study the history of clockmaking and watchmaking because mm. it's the start of the Industrial Revolution and the start of scientific thinking. One of my exes worked for the Rolex factory. Uh, mm. She was a watchmaker and did all the stuff by hand. She used to be a jeweler. And mm. it was a real bonding experience because we would go to places and I would tell her like, yeah, the gear you're learning to make was like revolutionary in that mm. it allowed windmills to be like a hundred times more efficient and shit like mm. the things you're doing now are the fundamentals of the world around us mm -hmm. hell the entire like scientific revolution started because dutch glassmakers wanted to make the prettiest pieces of glass with the purest quality and they just happen to be really really good for lenses lenses yeah <laughs> a lot of uh uh, a lot of um like the capacity to do stuff with instrumentation and technology is opens up so many new windows of asking the right kind of questions right uh, although we do often end up kind of um uh we build the in, tech first and yeah. then we don't know what to do with it that's yeah we we spend a lot of time like using it poorly <laughs> or asking bad questions with it just because we I mean, have the tools <laughs> that is one of the best ways to win a Nobel Prize. I've looked at the math. If you mm. want to win a Nobel Prize in STEM, don't do a discovery, make a tool. Yeah. If you make a tool, you have a much higher chance of winning a Nobel Prize. Like mm. the one mm. a few years ago was they figured out how to use quantum dots attached to every part of proteins in the cell so you could watch cell interactions live like as they were happening on your screen, like the biochemistry and you were like, "What the hell?" And like those guys barely did any original research in the sense of like they didn't discover anything new or put make anything new. They just put it together in a way that was useful for every other biologist for the next hundred years. Yeah. Tool making is incredibly important for science progress. Yeah. On the other side of that, uh, before I let you go, one last funny antidote about the history of science. Mm. Did you know that uh, chemists and biologists the only reason we have like beakers and test tubes and stuff is because they were using like 
china and flutes of champagne and stuff and all of their wives got so angry at them for destroying their kitchenware so frequently that a group of female wives of scientists in the british like paid a glassmaker to make them specific tools so they would stop doing it and i just love that story that these were some of the most innovative and intelligent men in the in history of the world and they were just like let's put it in the same glass that i let's put this lead in the same glass that i used to drink champagne out of at a new years and their wives were like honey please this is getting Don't expensive yeah. <laughs> uh yeah that's a that, that sounds like the sort of thing that would happen in that era <laughs> hilarious oh darling you can't keep using the flutes mm. for your mad science mm. woman you don't know what cambridge needs of me <laughs> <laughs> right well yeah okay. we're, we're uh we're approaching we're the two approaching... hour and 15 minute. Oh, yep, we just that's... hit it. Okay. Yep. Yeah. We've been running uh, quite a while now, so we should uh, probably wrap up. Bring it to a close. Listeners, but, uh, thank yeah. you for listening to episode one. Hopefully we will get better at this and you guys will enjoy listening to our dulcet tones in the near future. We'll yep. have guests on soon and we'll let you know. You mm. have a lovely day and catch us on your favorite podcast and check out the Guild of the Rose. This is bye from David. And bye from Richard. See ya.